You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, I'd like to welcome an artist that worked for Bally starting in 1976. He worked with other classic artists like Dave Christensen and then soon became the art director at Bally. He also did such classic pinball artwork as Evil Knievel, 8-Ball, Lost World, Playboy, Future Spa, Paragon, Space Invaders, Xenon, and Centaur. After Bally, he did some games for Game Plan and Williams, and then settled in in 1990 at Data East doing games such as Phantom of the Opera, Back to the Future, Checkpoint, Batman, Hook, Royal Rumble, GoldenEye, and Twister. Special guests, special guests, special guests, special guests. I'd like to welcome Paul Ferris to TopCast tonight. Again, Paul worked at Bally as uh, as an artist and a art director from 1976 up to about 1983, and then he did some uh, some work for Williams and Game Plan, and ultimately ended up doing uh, work for Data East from 1990 up to 1996. Paul's done a lot of famous pinball artwork. And we're going to talk to him tonight here on TopCast. So we're going to give him a call right now and see how he's doing. Hello? Hi, Paul. It's Clay. Hey, how are you? You're an artist by trade, obviously. But how did you get into art and how did you get into pinball? Okay, well, yeah, it's a little bit interesting. It's a, um, I was a... Um, I went to college, was an art art major in college, but then I, when I got out of college, I was a teacher first. I was a uh, high school art teacher and uh, wrestling coach, football coach hmm. in a suburban high school here in Chicago area, in Hinsdale South High School, and was doing that for about, um, I ended up teaching for about seven years. So that that's how I started out as an educator. I always planned to go into commercial art, but then... Um, I enjoyed the teaching and coaching potential, and I wanted to do that. So that was my way of kind of putting both those things together. So, um, and uh, actually enjoyed it a great deal. And when the opportunity to go to to get into pinball came up, um, I was a little reluctant to go do it um, because I was um, I enjoyed teaching so much. And actually, I've um, currently I'm actually I'm back in education too. So I kind of I'm finishing my career as an educator and still doing. Still doing work as an artist, but um, going back to teaching and coaching, which is sort of one of my first loves. So, now where did you go to school? I went to North Central College in um, Naperville, Illinois, which is pretty close here now. Um, and um, it was a you know, small liberal arts college here in Naperville, Illinois, nice school. I actually have um, in. Uh, Past years, I've actually coached wrestling over there at uh, different times too. So it's been kind of a important part of my life um, after um, after graduating from there. Now, how did you? Were you always a pinball fan, or how did you actually get into pinball? So, yeah, that's kind of what, what, which is kind of interesting. I uh, in the Chicago area, pinball wasn't even legal um, back in the, in the time when I was growing up. So I hadn't even been around pinballs much. Um, it was a um, Kind of an interesting thing. Once when I went to Bally, it had just become legalized in the Chicago area, 
so it wasn't even something I'd seen them, but you know we they just weren't around much, and they were. Um, but um, the, the way it actually happened, I was, um, as, as I said, I was an art teacher, and then in the summers I was um, I was going to art fairs and I was selling my paintings and, and working as a as a working artist in the summers. That was my summer job, and it was going very very well. And um, my brother had run into Bill O'Donnell Jr., who is um, at that time his dad was the president of Bally, and he had, they were um, childhood friends, and they were catching up on what you know what's your sister doing, what's your you know how your folks and that kind of stuff. And he asked about me, and my brother told him I was teaching and I was coaching and I was um, also having been having a very successful summer job um, selling my artwork and um, it just kind of it's it kind of uh, lit a light bulb in Bill's head and um, he asked if um, if um, I would want to come and talk to him because I guess at the time at Bally they were um, they were doing all their artwork um, out, outside, they were sending all their artwork to be done outside, with the exception of one artist that was working there. And it's the guy whose name you might know. His name is Dave Christensen. Sure. And, and he was um, he had been doing some very, some some nice work for them. And um, and uh, but other than that, they were sending all their work out to Advertising Poster, which was a company that did everybody's artwork at the time. And they were they had this Billy had this vision. Of bringing all the art department, or bringing the art department into Valley and doing all, doing all their own artwork, so it would give it a little more of a unique style. And, and he was looking for someone that um, could do um, more realistic, a um, little bit less stylized stuff. At the time, it was kind of um, more of a um, kind of a more cartoon approach, I guess you'd say. Uh, and he just remembered that I used to. He knew me as a kid, and he remembered that I used to have this. Um, you know this ability as an artist, and just wondered if I was still doing any of that stuff. And so that's how the the, the seed was planted um, by Billy with, with through my brother, and uh, he contacted me and um, and asked me to come in if I wanted to interview or talk about doing this. And I actually was very very fond of teaching and coaching. I mean, I was I, I just happened to love the lifestyle. Was I really enjoyed working with kids and. Um, so I was a little reluctant um, to even consider leaving it, but I did go in an interview, um, showed my artwork, and um, and it wasn't even the pinball type so much. It just showed an ability to do. I, I was pretty much uh, into um, drawing uh, sports figures, and I could I could draw people and portraits and that kind of work. And I actually could, was, was selling a lot of landscape paintings and. So not necessarily a pinball art, but the ability to do realistic work was um, the main thing I think you saw. And he also, Billy was trying to, as I say, set this art department up. And again, he thought somebody who was a um, you know coach teacher might might have the um, I don't want to use the term stability if the right is the right word, but you know artists can be kind of um, free spirits. And he was trying to come up with a um, pretty stable. Uh, group of people and he, and he actually was thinking about bringing somebody in that could that could set up an art department and become an art director so i i went in and interviewed and actually was not real excited about doing in the beginning and then we, we my wife and i sat down and talked about it and um ultimately um after you know a couple different uh, discussions i ended up um going to bali you know and kind of changing careers and it was um 
as I said, I was a little bit uh, nervous about it because I really loved what I was doing before, and I was pretty successful as a coach, and that was one of my first loves was wrestling. So um, uh, I went in, and um, as we, we talked about what the possibilities would be, and I guess the carrot that Billy held out for me was that not only would you be an artist doing pinball art, that eventually, within a, within a fairly short time, they wanted to set this art department up, and I would be the art director. Uh, so that was the um, that was the thing that kind of made it um, you know look kind of exciting to do, and I was not that familiar with pinball art at the time, so I had to kind of go out and kind of get caught up and see what you know what the current look was. When I saw Dave's work, that that definitely encouraged me that this, they were serious about trying to kind of give it a little bit of a different look to pinball, um, and, and uh, you know and actually make it more more illustrative, you know, and more of a and at that time, this was in the middle 1970s, you know, about 1975, 1976, somewhere around there. It was when I was being, when I was talking to them. Um, actually, record album covers. You know, it's hard to even imagine there used to be record album covers, but that was what, uh, where a lot of the uh, some of the best graphic art was being done. And um, so the the incentive for me was to try to take artwork and. Um, for pinball and make it um, more like the record albums and some of the, you know, the more elaborate illustrations that were being done at the time. So that was uh, what seemed appealing to me. So um, that's how it all started. I went, I went there and resigned from teaching and took the leap uh, of faith and went to Bali and uh, worked as a staff illustrator with um, Dave Christensen and myself. And even at that time, there were still... A, a few projects are still going to advertising poster, um, but again, the plan was to start hiring our own artists and um, develop a um, an in-house art department, and that's what we did. So, your was your um, you know I'm just looking at the internet pinball database, and it says that your first product was uh, the 1976 Night Rider. Is that is that correct? That is correct because I did some work on. Um, You'd get familiar with the process because the one thing I didn't have experience with was, I mean, I was a, a fine art painter, as I said, and an illustrator. Um, but in pinball, you had to do work in with ink, and then with um, they used to have to cut the separations for stencils, the screen stencils for every color, and it was a hand hand done process. You know, you didn't do it as a painting; you did it as an ink or what they used to call ruby lift, which is where you cut these. With a, with a knife, you actually cut these stencils for all the colors. So that was a little bit uh, new for me. So I worked on a, a slot machine, and I worked on a um, little bit of a pinball piece that went to Europe. But you know, just to kind of get familiar with the um, the process. And then, yeah, Knight Rider was my first uh, pinball machine. Um, and I think that right after, I got I got to remember the chronology, but I think right after. And actually, in Knight Rider, I actually, for models on the game, it was a truck driver, and it was a, uh, there was a waitress, um, um, you know, serving coffee to a, the truck driver, and it had a big truck. It was all during the CB radio um, craze that was going on at the time. And uh, I used, um, my assistant wrestling coach was the truck driver, and a couple of my former students were the waitress and some of the uh, people on the glass, and so I just had a little bit of fun with it, kind of like that, and, and enjoyed the process of kind of uh, bringing some people from my my former life into the piece, and and, uh, uh, and then we and we actually did a, a minor license for that for the, the CB radio, because this was just when license games were starting. Um, Tom Neiman 
from Valley was um, very instrumental in developing this whole idea of tying a license theme into the, a pinball. And uh, I think the first one they did was Wizard, which was based on the movie Tommy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and that's when Dave Christensen did uh, uh, with Ann Margaret and Roger Daltrey and um, so they were just developing this idea of license games. So in the in the Knight Rider game, there was a, a CB radio company that kind of had their we used their their particular CB as part of the um, as part of the graphics in the in the back class. And so it was like a, a minor li- license project. So so that was um, the first one. And then after right after that, I think it was Evil Knievel, if I remember right. Yeah, that's correct. And and now on Evil Knievel, that was obviously another uh, license thing. How uh... And you must have been pretty happy that game sold fourteen thousand units. And here you go um, from you know working in a high school to being like uh, uh, you know your artwork is being seen. God, it's prolific, you know. Yeah, that was that's the thing that I think is one of the um, the wonderful things about doing pinball art. And it just it came to me a little bit later when I, when I got got up to doing. Um, I think it was a Playboy game. You know, I started. I did my first European travel, the first European trip, and I would. I walked into a bistro in Paris, and there's my artwork you know, right inside the bistro. You know, it was very, um, you know, kind of kind of uh, overwhelming at first because here's your and and one thing nice about pinball art, it's a large piece of art. So a lot of illustrators who are very successful, you know, have have their work in magazines and things, but you just wouldn't be seen by that many people that size. You know, so it was it was a. Right. Large billboard your artwork, so that was yeah, that was a lot of fun to be able to have that experience. And now, how did you do the Evil Knievel? Did you uh, just work from pictures, or did you actually meet the man? Actually, met the man. Um, he he um, the, first of all, we worked from pictures to do most of the the concepts. That, um, in the early days, what would happen? You would send them um, whoever the licensed person was. You'd send them sketches, but generally they would either come in or you would make a trip to make a final presentation to make sure they signed off on everything and were happy with it. And uh, but I did all the artwork first as a um, as, as sketches that they approved, his manager approved, and then um, we actually did the glass, the, the final glass. This is the one that's sort of funny, but um, and before they were getting ready for production, Evil was in Chicago. Evil can Evil came into Chicago, and he was going to go and do a jump at the Chicago Amphitheater, and. Um, do a jump over a tank of sharks with his motorcycle, which so that was a big kind of a you know big one of his bigger publicity jumps. And uh, but he came into the the factory and into Bally's um, the, the corporate office there and came up to our department and looked at the glass and you know was happy with everything. I, the only thing he he was um, not happy about was uh, I had done this graphic at the top of the of the glass showing um, that uh, he was jumping over. This um, series of buses, and I had the, tra- the trajectory of the motorcycles um, incorrect, as he told me. I just I had it in a complete arc, but he actually he said no, no, the, la- the, la- the last two cycles of this jump, it was kind of a sequential, you know, um, you know, several motorcycles in a row that you would light up with individual lights, and it would look like the like he was jumping over these buses. Um, but he said that. Um, because the way I had the rear wheel of the motorcycle, he would he would crash if I didn't have the front wheel up higher as he landed on the far side. So I made that adjustment and got kind of a good a good adjustment in terms of um, the graphic because it was more accurate. But the, the ironic thing is, the next day um, he jumped at the um, at the at the uh, amphitheater and he had 
Um, and he got eaten by sharks? Yep. Do you remember the story of when, he, when he actually, I don't know if you heard about it, but he, he was doing a practice run, and he crashed and <laughs> went to the hospital and never never made the jump, and they actually had a live broadcast of this jump. And I remember Telly Savalas and Jill St. John were, were the commentators. They were, they were going to be talking, you know, as the hosts of the show about Evil Can Evil's Jump, and they had to fill this whole hour because he wasn't there because he had, he had, he had missed the tank or something and, and um, had had a crash. I mean, he was all right, but he had still had to go to the hospital and um, recover, so he never made the jump. So after telling me that he would crash, I thought it was a little bit strange that he had that happen to him. Yeah, a little bit ironic. Colorful guy. Yeah. Now, the one after that you did was... Eight ball, and now this glass is a little bit controversial. Well, maybe it wasn't at the time. I don't know. Tell me about that. Well, um, there's, there's two things that were going on then. This is sort of um, what was interesting. Yeah, yes, you, I mean, you talk about the fact that it kind of looked like Fonzie. I mean, that that kind of thing is that kind kind of looks like Fonzie, just kind of. Yeah, I mean, it was meant to be kind of. We we um, well, first of all, I don't want to minimize eight ball because eight ball turned out to be, I think, the, for the longest time, the most popular pinball ever made. Yeah, 20,000 units. Talk about a hit. And it was a hit. And what was funny, I mean, in my mind, I, I was developing at this time, this is one of the one of the more major contributions that we made um, as a um, as a company, you know, toward pinball graphics in, in terms, and it was, it was at the time, I was, I was pushing very hard to get the company to try to do this four-color process printing. Now, nobody was doing that at the time, and it was it ended up being a major contribution to pinball because it um, it made it possible to do paintings on glass as opposed to just doing these these ink drawings, which are kind of, I call it the kind of coloring book approach or comic book approach, which is where the old pinballs were done, where you did a very elaborate pen and ink drawing, and then you did these filled-in solid colors of, of, of separations. But if you had 14 colors on a glass... That would mean 14 different operations, you know, of a screener screening that color on the glass, and it was pretty labor-intensive. The four-color process, which is how they do, you know, almost every magazine cover or you know poster you've seen, and is doing it does it with four colors. And um, but it but it gives you the ability to reproduce photographically, basically, um, what you know what you've painted. So I was really pushing hard to do. That process, we were in the process of developing the equipment, we were in the process of um, ordering, setting up a circuitry department, all during that time, and they said that, okay, uh, you can do, the next game you do after 8-ball will be our first four-color game. So I was very excited about getting onto that, and then um, Norm Clark, who was our um, engineer in charge of pinball design, had come up with a, a pool theme, and again, pool themes were very common. Norm had done games in the past about pool, and he knew they were usually very successful. And it was one of our first fully electronic games. That was the other thing that made a huge difference in terms of it. It was a good game coming at the right time, and then the fact that it was fully electronic, um, you know, coming merging from the electromechanical age to the electronic age. This was going to be our first full run electronically. Um, so I was just trying to get through that game. And I, I, I try to remember, I think it was Tom Neiman and I were talking about, you know, what kind of theme do we want. We came up with this idea of kind of doing a, um, without a license, but a, but a happy days type of theme. Um, you know, the, the guy kind of playing pool in a leather jacket. And I, so that's all we did. And, I, and again, I, it was meant to look 
Um, it wasn't meant to be exactly him, but it was meant to be a guy like you know. And he was a character, caricature himself. You know, the Fonzie character was mm-hmm. kind of you know that black leather jacket guy in the fifties um, look in a pool hall. You know, and then kind of keep it a little bit cleaned up so we make it a, made it a Photoshop so it wouldn't look too dingy. And was and then there was actually a little bit of controversy even about you know trying to promote the kind of the wholesome kind of graphic for pinball at the time because it had just become. It was becoming legalized in different places, and Chicago was one of them. So they wanted to keep it sort of wholesome and appeal to um, families and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that, so we we just made it look you know, close to it. I, again, this was one of those fringe things. There was a, there have been games about um, you know, like Travolta and some other things, other things that have guys that kind of look like the disco figures, and uh, not 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 by our company, but um, so um, anyway, so that's what we did. We just did kind of a. Um, Kind of a caricature of a of a fifties Fonzie type character, you know, was the idea. Did any did you get any uh, repercussions? You know, any legal repercussions from this? Oh no! Um, and again, I, you know, we we, we would know this stuff if we did it. And again, you, you present you don't you don't do this stuff in a vacuum either. You know, you you pre, you do the artwork, and then you know you present it to marketing, and 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 they all have to kind of weigh in on it. If anything, anybody thought something was too close or too. You know, this would this might not be good from a whatever point of view. If it was a negative image, like you certainly didn't do. Um, there was a game called Old Chicago that there was some concern about because you didn't want to do gangster type themes. You know, on right. pinball, there was some sensitivity to that because of the industries, some some things that might have been in the in the past in the industry and so on. So there, these are these are things that are always represented to uh, marketing and you know all the um, executives and, and um, they all felt it was pretty it was pretty benign. So. Um, but I do. I I don't know how true this is, and I have never asked Tom even about it. But he he used to go out to Hollywood at various times, and um, supposedly somehow he was out there for a trip and talked to somebody who knew um, Henry Winkler, and Henry Winkler said something. You know, you really arrive when you see yourself on a pinball machine or something like that. But this was in its pretty much in its infancy when when the whole idea of having a celebrity on a pinball was not that wasn't done you know nobody did it except for tommy tommy was the first one or uh, i should say wizard and at the time that i was doing eight ball i'm pretty sure actually right before i did eight ball um dave christensen did was doing uh, captain fantastic right which was was a legitimate license from the movie built off of um wizard um and um so this was kind of when the whole idea of licensed characters was kind of being ushered into the industry you know so it was kind of a new a new territory you know so uh no there was no there was no legal um except that i've heard that winkler made the comedy thought the guy looked like him so right um at the, you know, at the time i just thought that was kind of you know kind of an interesting coincidence but right. um did not have there was no problem because different different era now and also it developed into a different era where that where Celebrities actually wanted to be on pinball machines because pinballs were just becoming kind of like the, you know, the um, uh, what do you call it, Nintendo or um, uh, Xbox and all that, all that craze of today. Well, this is what pinball was at that time. You know, it was it was, it was becoming this huge phenomenon. It was, uh, as you can see, the growth of the games. They went from if they sold seven thousand units, that would be good. Then they all of a sudden they go to twenty thousand, or, or even I think Wizard did ten thousand. That was a huge jump. In production, so that you know there was a starting to be an acceptance that tying these into licensed things um, was a good thing. You know, was a great thing to promote, help promote the game. I think the, up before that time, people just felt that 
we make a game, we'll sell it. I don't care who's on there. You know, it won't make any difference. And then Tom was able to promote people. Well, you know, I might get the game itself might get you the first six thousand, but the promotion part of it might get you the next, you know, the next five thousand. And in terms of the recognition of the licensed property on there, so that was a pretty interesting time to be to be around that. Um, well, even the girl on eight ball on the eight ball glass even kind of had a resemblance to the. Well, she was uh, certainly a, a, a more risque, larger-breasted version of the girl on uh, Happy Days. You know, I mean, did that have any sort of impact? No. That, well, I mean, just the fact that there was a, a kind of a sexy girl you could hang out at the. Um, I think the only thing about her that, I, if I remember right, was um, similar to anything about the show. It didn't look like the girl in the show, but um, but she was um, had a pink blouse or something. I think her name was Pinky or something, if I remember right. right. And so that was the only. You know, maybe um, stretch there, but um, but it wasn't a. Um, I mean, I. You know, if I wanted to make it look exactly like him, I would have made it look exactly like him. But um, right. it was more of a style, and the same thing with her. It was it was more because it was a it was a popular show, if I remember right. At the time, it was a pretty popular show. But the danger, and this this happened even with Evil Knievel. I can go. I'll go back to that in a second. But the. Um, you know the danger of doing a television show is you know you're you're doing a pinball piece that's maybe a year you started a year before it ever comes out as far as graphics and you know packaging and all we 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 didn't work on them for a year but it took that long from maybe 6 to 8 weeks to do your graphics and but they had to have a um the whiteboard which is the game itself without any graphics on it, it had to be played and tweaked and and refined and and so it was about a, a year from concept to final production and if you're um you know, if a TV show's all of a sudden went in the tank or got, you know, got canceled, or in the, like in the case of the of Evil Knievel, we had a um, we were doing a home game at the time for Montgomery Ward. As I remember, we're going to have a, the first home pinball, and our first home pinball was going to be um, an Evil Knievel theme because we had the license. We had already been popular with, you know, the public, so there was kind of a built-in awareness about it. Well, about I think it was about two, three weeks maybe before production. Of that game, we had done the graphics already, and it was all finished. Um, Evil Knievel had a um, a run-in, I guess was the way to say it, with his manager, and or I think or someone else. I think it was his manager, um, and, and actually went after him with a baseball bat, and it was in big, you know, big. Um, yeah, yeah, that doesn't help the product marketing, does it? No, it's not. It's not the most positive. See, everybody was very conscious of trying to keep a very positive image. of for pinball, you know, and you know, as they got more and more comfortable, and as it got more and more po- um, popular, um, it was able to graphically reflect maybe a little bit more, um, you know, male themes. I would say it's always pretty, pretty predominantly male audience. Right. Pinball always has been, um, but in those days, they were pretty conscious of trying to um, keep it wholesome as much as possible, and that was something that just they couldn't do. So I, I had just hired another artist to, to start building this department we had. And I had him do a, um, a replacement game. I think it was called Galaxy Ranger, if I remember right. Right. Um, which was uh, it had no no license tie-in, but they felt that again Midway was actually going to be making this game. Midway was a, a company that we we owned, but was not in the same facility. But they were going to do the manufacturing of this home pinball game. And the, the executives over there were very nervous about Evil Knievel, so they wanted nothing controversial at all. No no license to tie in uh, have any problems with you know so we quickly made redid this graphic redid the play field and and uh 
Kevin had um, Kevin O'Connor was the artist that did that, by the way, and he um, did a great job. And it was just one of those things you have to be able to adapt to, and that's kind of the danger of a TV show. You can have you can get the license to a TV show, and then your production schedule set up, and you may not be able to work it into the production schedule, and you know, till the following summer or something, and then that TV show might be on the downside. That kind of happened with Six Million Dollar Man when we did that theme. That was kind of on the you know, going the other direction. It had been on the air, I think, for six or seven years. It was successful, but it was starting to get a little tired. Right. And by the time you get the deal all done, um, it can it can affect, you know, um, how long it's going to stay on the air or affect its popularity. So um, Now, how was uh, how was it working with Dave Christensen? It was great. He's an interesting guy. I don't know if you've ever, if you ever talked to Dave. or um, Sure. He's a very interesting guy. And, um, and again, he, he didn't... First of all, they had determined that they really liked his artwork, and I'll say, I'll say this about Dave. Dave might be one of the best line artists I've ever seen. I mean, ever, ever, and with a, with a pen. He can do magical stuff. He used to illustrate, um, uh, manuals, uh, right, technical yeah. manuals for, right. um, for different companies, and he still, these exploded parts, you know, of, of a carburetor and things like that, you know. He just does this, you know, magnificent work, um, all, you know, all drawn, you know, not, not on a computer. Of course, computers weren't even part of graphics at that point. Right. But um, so he he was excellent. And and again, his his artwork is what motivated me to say, you know, for, again, I, I didn't get, I wasn't raised playing pinball, and I I'm thinking in my head of pinball of kind of stylized Jerry Kelly type um, artwork, which I'm not saying was um, was bad artwork, but it wasn't my style. I, I wanted to do something much more realistic, much more um, illustrative. Uh, and Dave's approach was much more in that direction. You know, he he always had a whimsical sense of humor, maybe kind of a um, kind of a twisted sense of humor at times. Um, but the work is what made me think. You know, this is a serious this 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 whole direction of pinball art could be changing, and it would be a great place to work. So that had a lot to do with me wanting to come there. I don't. Th- he wasn't. He was very. He was good to me. He was. Uh, he didn't know. He kind of looked at me a little bit as an adversary. I think when I first came in. Because he kind of had his own way of working. He, he, the one thing that was, um, the good thing about Dave was he did this beautiful work. The, the bad thing was it took him a long, long time to do it. Right. And, and they were trying to get these um, games turned out. Um, uh, you know, as, as productions were going up, the electronic pinball was coming in. That was the whole idea about setting up this art department. So when I went there, I wasn't an art director, but I had to kind of get a get a lay of the land a little bit and get to know the other you know technical people because there were several artists doing different slot machine artwork and and this whole thing had was going to have to come together under one roof basically um so i'm sure dave saw me as maybe a potential adversary and 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 you know again he was um they say a very interesting guy that um um kind of you know the the personality of the artist that was concerning the executives there. That's why. He, that's why he wasn't asked to be an art director because he was more of. They, they saw him more as a kind of a lone wolf. Um, uh, you know, great with graphics, and let's just not let's not rock that boat. Let's just let him keep doing what he's doing and do well. And did, yeah. did that cause a problem between you two? And they did. And so it was. It was fun to work with him. I say it was challenging at times because he wasn't. Uh, you know, um, a typical you know nine to five type of guy. You know, would just come in, do his work, and go home and. Uh, you know, so there was there were clashes, I would say, at times. But also, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, and especially his work. Because if, if his work hadn't been what it was, I probably wouldn't have thought that this was a, a good move for me from a career standpoint. Because I, I wanted to do more realistic, uh, illustrative work. And as I said, he his work um, 
you know, was leaning toward that direction, you know, so. Now, when you did Lost World, uh, now that, that game kind of had a, di- a different artistic feel to it. Tell me about that one. And that was my, mo- I mean, again, if I, looking back at my career at Bally, that was sort of the, um, you know, a, a major turning point, not just for me, but for the whole pinball business because of this four-color artwork process. The, it, it enabled us and me, because I was really the only one there that was really a painter. Um, as I said, Dave was a graphic artist that used uh, the traditional method and, did, and continued to do that style later, too. I mean, he, he didn't change his style for the four-color process, but it did allow um, other artists that we were building in this department to do airbrush and to do oil painting and to do all those things and capture that with the four-color process. And, that's, and that was a major time because it wasn't just doing artwork. We were setting up equipment to to do this four-color screen printing on glass with ultraviolet inks. So these were inks that could be, when they printed the art, they would immediately get cured by an ultraviolet lamp, and this was all new technology at the time, and then um, and then be immediately dried. So you didn't have all these this drying time problem that was that would slow down the process and, uh, of printing. And, and the presses themselves that they bought to, to make the artwork, instead of doing 250 impressions in a day, which is what one person could do is doing it by hand, they could do, you know, 500 impressions an hour. So it was a tremendous um, cost savings and that was to Bally, and that was one of their, what made it so attractive to them. And I was glad that happened, but to me it was all about being able to come up with uh, painted artwork and transferring that to glass, and nobody was doing that at the time. So Lost World was a, actually a piece I had presented to, to um, the executives there to promote this idea of looking into this alternate screen printing process. And so all during the time I was doing 8-Ball and trying to get on to go to do Lost World, um, we had we were building up this uh, art department, screening department, to do the, this UV printing. So we went to the uh, trade show, the AMO, AMOA show that, that year, and uh, our two pieces on the floor were 8-Ball and... Um, I think there was a third one. We might have had a third piece. I'm not sure if it was Matahari. I don't know my, my chronology right now, but I think Matahari, which is a beautiful game, and that was done in the conventional. Right, that's Dave. Yes, and he had done a, uh, To me, that's one of my favorite pieces of his, and graphically, and that was done in the old way. We had um, Eight Ball, which was done in the old way graphically, and then we had Lost World on the floor of the show. It hadn't, they, were, they kind of introduced it there. Uh, with you know they didn't used to do that they didn't want they didn't want to bring out a game too early and show it to distributors and then have distributors wait say well I'm going to pass on this game so I can get eight or so I can get uh, Lost World so they were sometimes uh, a little reluctant to put a game on the on the floor of a show and get you know, worry about the anticipation for the next game and, and hurt the chances of the game preceding it um, but in this case it was a great move because it um, it did a couple things it. It showed this direction of Bally's artwork, and I was just standing on the floor. Um, I didn't have any badge on or anything at the booth, and I was just standing along there watching people play the game and listening to talk. And, and I remember two um, two distributors coming by and say, you know, we had just gone into first place as the manufacturer of pinballs, and um, we were, you know, we're, we're on the rise. And I remember hearing two people say, well, no wonder Bally's in first place. Look at the artwork on that game. And so they rec- they didn't know what the difference was, I don't think, but they recognized it was different, hmm. and it and I, that was you know that was certainly uh, gratifying to hear that because we were we were banking a lot that this would be um, not only a production benefit but it would be a uh, graphic and a, and a 
move us away from the, the crowd of other pinball machines in terms of look. And so that was the whole motivation for it. And I was, you know, I had a lot writing on it, and um, uh, and I actually, the piece you saw as Lost World was was actually a, I had done a small version of that as a sketch and a little, little painting, and we did all of our, our sample classes with this new process for that game hmm. and make sure it all worked okay, and, and, and then we moved into doing that as a our first four-color pinball machine. Now, when you did Playboy, though, that's back to the old style, though, isn't it? Uh, it isn't. And, but 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 see, that's what that's what's unique about a four-color game. That's what I was also trying to, and I was also trying to make sure Dave understood this too. You can do artwork that has a lot of that same quality in four-color process. Because I mean, if you think about, you, you know, magazine covers or album covers, some of them were very simple and graphic. Some were much more subtle and and uh, blended colors and more realistically done because the four color process just reproduces whatever image you photograph because um, it starts out as a photographic process nowadays it's also you know it's, it's desktop technology you have a little scanner you scan a, a photograph or you scan a painting and then you reproduce it you know it's, it's kind of like an inkjet print you know that's kind of what all this was like in, in the beginning with all of the computers you know this is when scanners were um, laser scanners to scan your artwork was it pretty new also they had these huge scanners that were very expensive to get your artwork you know get them scanned um, but they could reproduce anything so what i did with playboy was the center figures um i don't know if you've seen it or not but it's, sure. it's got the you know the, the character hefner with two girls and um and then a bunch of little vignettes around the edges but the, that was all done as a painting and then the outer borders there's a bunch of mirror on it and there's some graphic playboy club keys and uh, others, you know, kind of an Art Deco uh, border to it, and all, and all that was done using the four-color process, but doing it as solid colors, uh, like you would a, a simple graphic. So I, I combined the two, and um, and I don't know if you know the story about that game, but um, when when we presented the artwork, to, and I was thrilled to be able to do it because it was going to be my first um, kind of major um, license, and um, you know the, the reputation of pinball artists, some pinball artists, especially Dave, of course was, you know, you do these sort of voluptuous, sexy women, and that was sort of part of the theme of, of you know, what pinball was kind of emerging into in terms of graphics. Now, nothing nothing inappropriate, but attractive you know, right. women that would be attractive to a male audience because it was so, so predominantly male. Mm-hmm. And so I was really excited about doing the project. We sent the graphics to Hefner, and uh, and I had done all my research, of course, and, and you know, what do you do uh, for a... That's a you know a PG um, rated uh, Playboy you know without nudity and without anything inappropriate and and so I kind of did it as a montage of the Playboy lifestyle and the clubs and the um, you know they had resorts at the time and just kind of like you know what what Playboy I thought would kind of advertise for their you know you know their image what they and it was a positive image you know it was not done in any way sleazy or anything well when Hefner got it we got this conference call and they called they called me in and um, they were in the, I think there was four four of the executives in there. I think Billy O'Donnell was in there, and Tom Neiman, and Ross Shear, and um, Don Britz, who was the, um, the operating officer at the time. They were all in the office, and they were listening to Hefner. His, his, um, he was all excited about doing the pinball. Matter of fact, he was criticized for being more excited about working on the pinball machine than he was his hotel in, um, in Atlantic City <laughs> that was going up. He was you know much more of a game player than he was really a, a casino person. You know, right. so he was. Um, his own executives were worried this was a distraction that he was going to be working on a you know with people on a pinball I guess, but his his complaint was that it 
you know, the graphics were fine. He wasn't criticizing the style, but he thought the, the way it was done was much more about the Playboy lifestyle, which is what we were trying to do. But it it was missing what he really wanted to see in the pinball. And it, what, it, what it came out to be was he wanted to be in the middle of it. <laughs> he wanted to be a, a picture of him, you know, as the Playboy icon. Right. And and you know, which now and thinking about it, it was really, it was a good move by him because he that's all he all he was about was promoting that that's what Playboy is. He is Playboy. You know, it's not just his company, but he's the front man. You know, he's the he's the image of what people when you know the lifestyle of Playboy is to have this wonderful setting. And they had just moved out to California at that time to the new Playboy ma- Mansion West. And uh, so he, you know, he asked if we could rework it, and then, um, and he asked for. Uh, at the time, he was dating a girl named Sandra Theodore. That was his current. He, he had broken up with Barbie Benton, and was uh, it's called dating, but it was seeing um, this girl named Sandra Theodore. She was a playmate. She was a playmate of the month, maybe, maybe playmate of the year. I can't remember if she was of the year. Anyway, she was um, the, one of the girls he wanted to see in the in the picture and then I, I can't remember if it was me or if it was him that came up with um patty mcguire who was playmate of the year that year hmm. um she's now jimmy connor's wife the, the tennis player um but he wanted those are the two girls he wanted up front to be surrounding um on each side of him hmm. and then, so then so i redid the graphic and um we actually took it out to him which was you know a tough trip you know so somebody was teaching high school a year and a half earlier, and I was in the Playboy Mansion with Tom Neiman, um, <laughs> you know, walking around. It was quite a, it was quite an adjustment to my sense of reality, but it was um, it was fun, and he was very pleased with it. Um, he actually, when we, pre- we presented the artwork, he um, at the time James Kahn was staying out there, almost got permanent resident at the time. I think he'd gone through a divorce, and so I remember him coming into the room and was very excited about it, and they were all you know excited about. It. And then they, he actually helped. Um, on another trip, we went out there after we got the glass approved. We did the artwork for the glass, um, uh, and I'll, I'll go to the, the the other trip in a second. But we had we had this large promotional pinball tournament based on the the Playboy game as the um, they were pl- they were playing another game. I think it might have been it might have been eight ball in the tournament, and then they were going to unveil the Playboy pinball at the Playboy Towers um, in Chicago. Uh, right. to present to the kind of the general public, you know, unveil it to the world, you know, the next great pimp, uh, pinball by Valley, and it was going to be Playboy. Well, all the playfield had gotten done, and we'd screened it all because you have to do a playfield to um, to actually put a game together because it has to be all screen printed and then top coated and, and all the plastics and all the rest of the game had been done. But the backlash had only been approved, and again, this is the days of. You, did, you couldn't do a quick photograph, blow it up, and put it on the backlash. You had to really do the artwork. So um, I was, um, while, the, while the party was going on at the Playboy Towers, I was back at Bally on the northwest side in my, in my little studio there, you know, getting, trying to get this backlash done to put on the, back, on the game. So it was a race against time to get, to get the glass done, get it down to the, um, the, the ballroom uh, on the right. game. And then ready for the unveiling, and it was, you know, I think it was maybe 15 minutes before they unveiled it, where I rushed over there, and they had a security guy come to the door to get it to kind of bring me into the the room. They kind of had it on the stage, and we from the back of the stage, they had it all covered up. And they, um, when they got the, the glass in, I think about 10 minutes later, they unveiled it, and you know, to great applause and great reception. But so that was um, that was a little tough. Um, 
I don't know, today it would be a lot tougher to pull that off physically, but, uh, you know, there have been several all-nighters to get that thing done, and, and it, but it was a great success. Um, and then we went on to do the, the final painting, of course, and, um, and Hefner was very pleased with it. Yeah, I remember, you know, sitting right next to him, and he was really happy the way he was depicted and how he, how I had captured him. <laughs> he made a couple of comments on the girls, and when the girls actually looked at it, I was surprised too. They, they weren't too concerned about how I painted their face, but they wanted to make sure that, um, I had done a good job with their figures and their, and their, and their, <laughs> their torsos. And, and actually, Sandra Theodore thanked me for the cleavage that I gave her because she didn't think she had as much as she would like to have had. So, <laughs> so there's things like, there's a little side, side things that happen in, in the, um, in the process of getting an acceptance of, of, of your artwork. So, um, well, you did great with it. I mean, they sold over 18,000 of them. You gotta be just plain thrilled at that. Well, it was huge. Again, that again was the second, if I remember right. Now, again, this is good stuff gets a little foggy after a few years, but, it, um, I think that was the second major electro, all electronic pinball we had. So, um, it, it, all those things came together. I mean, none of us know, you know, well, what if it wasn't Playboy or what if it hadn't been electronic? You know, what it done as well. All those things just happened to be hitting at the right time. And the, the market was ready for that. And it was a great theme. Um, there's a little controversy again, and there's some concern doing a Playboy game. You know, you're, you're kind of trying to come through this wholesome, as wholesome as possible image, but be, be hip and be current and be, have impact. And again, appeal to a major, uh, the majority of the audience was male. Hmm. And, you know, younger male. So, um, and so that was, um, all those things they had to consider. So it, in retrospect, it was a great theme. Um, some kind, a little bit of controversy, some comments, I think, from some, I mean, distributors would get things from some parents, I think, and at, at different things, and, uh, uh, but it basically was very successful. And yeah, to, to sell that many games, and it still is, it's a classic game. I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, Jim Patla did the, um, did yeah, the design. design on it. He was a very good designer, and, um, so he, he was, um, you know, very important in the process, and, um, it just turned out to be a very, very good game at the, at the right time. Now, what about Future Spa? What was the story behind that? That's kind of, you know, an unusual theme. Well, okay, it is. Um, let me tell you, I have to kind of think back to these, you know, because some of the stuff is almost like yesterday. Some of it, you have to remember what influenced what and when, when why things happened the way they did. But I do remember that one pretty well because... Um, we had come out with these wide body games and uh wide and I and I probably I'm gonna jump back to um for a second to Lost World for a second. When we came to the show with with Lost World, um we you know, when when we had a copyright on it. Another game another manufacturer, which you probably are I'm sure familiar with, Atari, had just gone into the pinball uh business. Mm-hmm. And they had um had a game. We didn't know this. We heard they had a game coming out that was sort of a fantasy theme or something, but Unbeknownst to us, they, they um, their game was going to be named Lost World, and hmm. so by us being on the floor because ours was done. I mean, it wasn't it had you know the, the the two things had no connection at all except that they both had come up with this name Lost World, even though they were not even the theme anywhere the, nearly the same. Um, but because we had ours on the floor with a with copyright, that that meant they had to go back and change the name of their game. So there was a little bit of a um, sense that we you know kind of um were did that the right opportunity to do that for for previewing the game um then then in terms of atari they their game was larger Uh, they they had what we called the wide body games and so this was a new a new attempt at a a different format product 
slightly larger. You know, play, uh, there's some purists would say it doesn't play the same. The, the geometry is not the same as a conventional size pinball and all that. But we were um, coming out with um, our series of um, of wide bodies, and I believe we made three. The first one was Paragon, which is one of my favorite games that I got to do, and I really um, enjoy. I even named my company Paragon after um, I, I left. Um, I became a freelancer and formed my own company. Um, so that was a, a fun game. Then we then we had um, Future Spa and uh, Space Invaders. So you did Paragon before Future Spa, as I remember. Yes. Now, okay. Well, let's talk about um, uh, let's talk about Paragon then before Future Spa. Yep. Um, was again um, from my point of view a bigger canvas, you know, because it was a wide body, so more you know more places to do artwork. We kind of decided, um, and I suggested, because Lost World was a game that, um, I think, I think, because Playboy followed Lost World, if I remember, and they wanted to get into Playboy, and they could have sold many more Lost Worlds than they actually did. Um, they sold 10,000 Lost Worlds, I believe, or 12,000, something like that. Right. Ten. And, um, this feeling was because this, the graphics made a difference, it was a new looking theme, and they really realized once they got into it that they had, they had scheduled it to only be you know, we're going to cut it off at twelve thousand um, because we want to get into Playboy, and you know you have promotional d- deadlines you have to hit, and all these things to make this all work. So they um, they really didn't realize the full run of Lost World that they might have. And so I, what I suggested, well, let's why don't we come in with a kind of a graphic sequel? People are kind of used to the um, this look and this sort of sword and sorcery. And there was an artist at the time, and I'll be honest, I used his book. A guy named Frank Frazetta, who was doing a lot of um, movie posters and and uh, but more more he did more um, comic books and and uh, Conan the Barbarian type book covers and um, very you know very dynamic sword and sorcery fan- fantasy style artwork very rich um, exciting stuff and I I showed that to um, uh, marketing before I even started on the sketch for Lost World to show them the direction I wanted to. To go, and nobody really done that stuff yet, and especially in that painted look, mm-hmm. because it wasn't capable wasn't capable of being done. So um, I, I moved to, um, you know, I wanted to do a, a bigger and better version of that that style with Paragon, and use kind of re, revisiting the same characters that were on the glass of. So it'd be, you might call it a sequel, um, and that's so that's how we. Um, we got into Paragon, and then I came up with the name Paragon. I mean, it was sort of a, it became my project. I used myself as a, um, as the character because I, you know, I'm a wrestling coach and a weightlifter, and I sort of did you know a, a fantasy version of the barbarian guy and um, created my own you know mythology for the game. So there's a story in my head, and um, to kind of so you had because when you when you do when you do graphics, you have to have some reason to put something where you put it. Just, just, can't just be color. This was that was almost like a um, visual comic book, you know, the whole Paragon thing. So, and we created the winged lion and as a um, as a character in the for the game. And the um, and then my wife was um, I, she was gracious enough. And this was when I think I was 29 or 30 at the time, so we're still pretty young. Um, you know, modeled for the the female character and the glass and the and the playfield and. Um, so it became a kind of a very personal project with a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun for me to do, but I happen to I happen to like it a lot too. And I, it's actually one of the paintings I've got hanging up here in my studio that I really, um, you know, still like a lot. And, um, so the gal, the gal on Paragon is is your wife? Is my wife? Uh huh. Wow, she's pretty good looking. Yeah, she's great. She's great. I mean, we were high school sweethearts, and um, she's um, she's 
still looks great. She she ta- she says. I mean, I don't agree with her as much. She says that it's it's her from the neck up, and then I you know it was my fantasy from. But she was actually very attractive and still is. You know, so um, it was it was. Um, I mean, you know, when you do when you do a muscular character, you know, you have a chance to make the muscles a little bit more ripped, and you have a chance to do the you know the the figure a little more curvaceous on the females and stuff. It, right. That's just doing a fantasy art, but. Um, but at the same time, that that's how she looked, and she, I, you know, uh, we took. She was. I have a, a stuffed lion at home. I put on the um, put in the photograph, and then I took Polaroids of her. You know, she had to get in this uh, frightened pose, as, as as if a lion was about to attack her, and and in my living room, you know. So this was uh, it was kind of a looking back on it, it seems kind of silly now, but it was fun at the time, and she was. Uh, she's an accountant and a financial planner by occupation, so she's not necessarily a very um, flamboyant, artsy type, you know. And so to, to to kind of contribute this way was was unique for her, but it was fun. You know? And and it's now I get you know people when people call me and talk to me uh, about pinball art and different games, uh, they all want to know if it's true that if it was my wife, and I, you know, absolutely it's true. <laughs> now how now let's go back to the future spa. Now what was the thinking behind that one? Okay, well, that was one, um, and again, I have to remember how the sequence of the thing. It would, that project was given a day after I was working on Paragon. Then they were going to come up with version number two of um, in a wide body. And again, I was, we had Kevin O'Connor there at that time, I believe, and he was also doing um, games called Supersonic. I think was right around there. There was when the mm-hmm. um, SST um, was, you know, flying between Europe. That was a big deal at the yep. time. So he was working on that game. Dave was going to be working on Future Spa. Um, I was finishing up Paragon, as I remember. And what, the Paragon, the inspiration for Paragon actually kind of came out of a, um, back in the, um, this would have been, let's see, early, is this early 80s? Yeah, I guess early 80s or late 70s. There was a television commercial that was promoting um, health clubs. It was actually Chicago health clubs then. Ironically, Valley ended up buying out that whole Health club chain. It was it was Dick Tanny's and right, uh, you know, all across the country. And but having no relationship at that time, there was this great commercial they they were running that was sort of a you know what what's the spa of the future going to be like you know and, and it had these kind of people in spacesuits and just kind of um, um, you know trying to envision this this you know future of a, of a spa you know or a health club and trying to. You know, basically promote that they were the that was who Chicago Health Clubs was, and um, so that kind of was the inspiration for well, what if we what if we did so? That's a current theme. You're always trying to find something that's kind of hot in the public at the time that hasn't isn't just another card game or another pool game or another Cowboys theme, which has been popular in the you know in the 50s and 60s, and so you're trying to come up with something that's current and kind of in the in the public. Um, Awareness, um, you know, it's hot right at the time. But if it's too, if it's too hot or too short-lived, you've got a very dated pinball by the time it comes out. You know, hmm. so it, you know, this was one that marketing thought might be kind of a fun approach, and you, you kind of because it seemed like this whole um, there was a whole direction going toward more refined health clubs and more, you know, where they actually would become, you know, you know places to meet people and singles places. They were kind of envisioning these elaborate. Which, which is, you know, all happened, lifetime fitness and all these other things of today right. is kind of what Future Spa was um, supposed to be about. But it was also, at the time, again, there's a lot of Star Wars where the movies that were popular and the, all this, this re, um, reemergence of sci-fi, science fiction movies and, 
fantasy movies, and that, that was also very popular. So you kind of try to combine those elements. The reason it was ended up being it ended up being a two two people working is because Dave actually um, did the um, playfield and the cabinet, and I did the back class. It was just because of um, time frame. Right. And he, as I said, he, he takes a lot. It was again, it's a wide body pinball machine, so it was there much more work to do because you have more space to cover. And we were we were kind of running out of time. And after I'd finished up um, Paragon, they decided they weren't going to hit their production uh, date that they needed to hit for these um, for the pro the um, prototypes that they would send out on future spots. So that's why I jumped in and did the backlash. And the backlash was actually my my brother is the is the male figure. My sister-in-law is the female figure. Um, I've got my brother-in-law is down doing curls in the um, lower part of the glass. My secretary is in, is in it. I mean, I just, you know, I grabbed anybody that was willing to, um, you know, be famous for a short time without really being famous um, uh, and put them on the glass. And um, and I did the glass. I mean, we tried to make the, you know, the marriage happen. And we don't have the same style. So, but it was, um, it was still fun to do, but it was definitely done. Uh, that was not the intended uh, way to have it done. It wasn't because I wanted to jump in on that. It was because we were just going to run out of time. Right. And kind of funny, the, the way you do a pinball machine, usually you do the backlash first in terms of concept, and you um, present that to a licensed figure, or you get all your approvals based on the backlash, you know, how they've depicted, like I said, with Playboy, the way it works. But that's the last thing you usually do in terms of production. You, you would do all the, the cabinet, the pinball, the playfield, the um, right. plastics and decals and all the other stuff first. So they could build the game, and then the glass would be the last thing. They just have to put that out at the end. So, so your sequence would would be kind of start with the the concept of backlash, but then that's the last thing you actually finish. So that's why that was, you know, I was able to pick that up, and they finished the playfield, I finished the backlash, and we got done on time. And now, was that four color process or old school? It is four color process, and and again, um, the. Um, yeah, that's a fairly bright game too. I mean, that's that uh, the the argument about four color process, and it's, it's a fair argument that you, when you do a four color game, and you'll say you're going to do a solid red and four color process, it won't be as bright as just screening a solid red. And sometimes we actually did. We would actually do like in like in Playboy. I would do my my painting, and then where I had solid pink, I wouldn't make that out of the the painted artwork. I made that just with a solid um, print of pink screen printing ink. So it would be a more even more vibrant. Um, so that was, you know, sometimes you had to combine those two. So it would be more than four color. It would be a, five, a fifth color, um, which was okay because you didn't it didn't really make the um, the manufacturing process get that much more labor intensive. But it was still a way you could pop up the colors a little bit. So um, when we did Future Spa, we intentionally designed it, even though it's all four color process. I used some pretty strong contrasts with colors around the reds and yellows to make them pop um, a little look like they have a little more vibrance to it sometimes you want it to be you know more muted that's the nice thing about four color process you could go you know, all different directions you know hmm. um, whereas the the conventional way was a little more comic book like it was a little more you know always going to be fairly bright bright colors or solid colors so right um, so yeah that's how um uh, you know how the, the it was four color process on the back class, and it was um, conventional art as all the playfields were. When I worked at Bally, we never did a four color process um, playfield, oh. because the, the question there was, and, and again, it goes back to what was being done in the industry at the time. Advertising poster still was screening everybody's playfields. 
they were not doing the glasses anymore and they weren't doing the plastics and they weren't but they still had everyone in the business and there were four manufacturers in Chicago and, and actually pretty much the world you know um and they were all being done advertising poster because they had this what we were led to believe was a miraculous top coat that nobody else could do and they had a proprietary um system to make it happen and and uh, you know value art was very concerned about um you pull that from ad poster and we do it ourselves you know you have nobody to fall back on if it doesn't work if we start getting complaints from the the field that the the playboy or excuse me the pinball machines uh, play fields are you know um, eroding or chipping up or whatever so they were very concerned about that but we were at that time still testing and and anticipating doing our own play fields um but at at that time we didn't do any four color play fields what well, we did a lot of games with the four color glass but um we didn't do the uh, play fields while I was still while I was still at Valley. We, those came up later, and actually I got to give credit to um, Data East and those guys were um, continued going moving forward on doing um, four color play fields. Right, right. Data East was the first company to do four color process on the play field. Right, that's correct. And I was there. I was doing work for them at the time, and it was um, actually I'd hoped it was going to be. Um, I'm jumping way ahead now, but. Um, I was doing a game, um, let's see, what was I doing? Uh, Goldeneye, I think. And uh, Goldeneye was a four-color um, play field, but I was doing Frankenstein for them, which was a Mary Shelley's Frankenstein based on a movie with Robert De Niro and uh, Kenneth Branagh, and, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my favorite games. And I really wanted to do that as a four-color play field because it really fit the theme and, and it would have been a great one to do. They just weren't sure if, they, again, they were still kind of experimenting to make sure they could do all this. and. Uh, but that was the one we made a big push for to try to get it visualized to be four color. And then uh, the next game I did for them was um, the first James Bond with Pierce Brosnan, the GoldenEye movie. And uh, we did that as a four color play field. So that was a lot of fun to see that finally finally emerge. Um, right. You know, it's um, and four color. It just takes so much. It, it takes good equipment. It takes a um, a very good. Um, you can't reject reject a lot. You have to be very, you know, keep keep the process very even, or you can the colors can shift to the blue side or the red side and look distinctly different than your original if you don't have really good manufacturing um, controls in place. And with playfields, I mean, it's you know, it's a fairly expensive thing to to you know to reject and then refinish and start over again. So um, from a manufacturing standpoint, it wasn't as um, attractive to do it in four color and take a chance on having a lot of rejects. Uh, originally, it wasn't as attractive, but uh, then they they worked that out, and uh, and part of it is you know the depending how large the runs are. If, if a run of a game is is you know these twenty thousand games, it, it it seems like it'd be great, but you have much more potential for rejects, you know. So that um, when the game when the game runs became a little smaller, it became easier to man to uh, monitor and to control. So. Um, now, what about uh, to jump back to to the Bally days? What about Space Invaders, and and that was a, the uh, another wide body? Yes, it was, and it was a. Um, and again, I you know this would be the sort of the definitive set the record straight kind of thing. But um, there was a um, we got the license to do. Well, let me let me put it on my back up a little bit. Even before that came out, when um, this is let's see, I'm going to try to think if I have my timing right on this. I no, it wasn't right. Okay. I have to, sometimes there are different licenses that were coming up at, at, for potential licenses, and then you would pass on them. Or you, for, for example, we passed on, as a company, we passed on um, Indiana Jones. Uh, we got a, a script from Spielberg and 
to do a um, video game um, on Indiana Jones, um, but when we got the promo material and um, we looked at all the, the theme of the game with the, with the pre-production artwork and it had a guy with a whip and it just you know it didn't I don't know how's this going to really how's the yeah how's the you know the Star Wars generation going to like this sort of 1940s type you know serial you know uh, cliffhanger type storyline you know is this going to go over you know so there was some and then we also were presented with a from Walt Disney um, the movie Tron and it was very progressive you know it was the first digital uh, computer graphics on the screen where you actually had computer images that were part of the art were you know part of the graphics and you know very progressive and this sounded so exciting and so they they chose Tron which turned out to be not not a usually successful movie but very you know very pioneering because it was using all these graphic images for the first time and passing on Indiana Jones um, and uh, sometimes those things come come back you know Right. But um, with Space Invaders, we 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 had this hugely successful video game. This is again when the the rise of pinball, the, the excuse me, the rise of video games were, were replacing, not replacing, but becoming more and more popular. And Space Invaders was um, hugely successful, the, the video game. So because we had that license, it was our own through Tato. Um, I believe it was Tato that made that game, yep. if I yep. remember right. Um, through them, we had the license to that theme, so they said, well, let's do a Space Invaders theme. A year before that, we had gone out to California to listen, this is, I say we, it was Tom Neiman, myself, I think that was, I think that was the only two that were there. We, Tom Neiman was head of marketing, and uh, I was the art director at that point. And uh, we went out to, to listen to a proposal by 20th Century Fox on a new movie they had coming out um, called um, Alien. I think that was the working title at that point, but um, and they, you know, they told us all about the movie and it's going to be kind of a truck driver in space kind of thing, grungy, not not the slick Star Wars thing, and the whole premise. And they had a new director from England that was doing commercials, but they thought he'd do he have a, you know a new vision to this thing. We never saw the creature um, that they were going to be using in it until the very end before we left. They showed us a little kind of a wax model of a doll type thing of what like an action figure kind of thing of what creature was going to look like and they were being very protective about the way they even the way they shot the movie so you didn't see a guy in a rubber suit that they didn't want anybody to think that that's what it was and it was just before computer graphics of course and so you know everything was a scary guy in a rubber suit and they were trying to avoid that cliche uh, 20th century fox was um so and, and when they showed me the um the uh Dollar, the, um, I recognized the style because I had a book back in my studio um, of a guy named um, H.R. Giger was his, the artist name, and he was at that time was has, had some recognition for doing these very sort of bizarre biomechanical um, creatures and women, and um, for um, so some rock bands he was doing. Um, a couple of different. Uh, I'm trying to think who else who he did, but he did several album covers. And again, album covers were very mm -hmm. hot graphically at the time too. Right. So I was very aware of um, this artist and, uh, and his book, which actually is a book that um, that um, Ridley Scott looked at when they were kind of trying to come up with a creature design. Uh, it's the same book, you know, of, of H.R. Giger's work, which is pretty kind of disturbing in some ways, and um, but very cool and very, it was very unique at the time. And um, I had tried to talk. Um, Valley into doing a game sort of based on that style. You know, we're always trying to capture something that was in the, the public's... Um, right. You, you, you couldn't just walk in and say, I want to do this wonderful, impressionistic game, and 
they'd just turn you loose to do it. You had to kind of come up with, you know, I, want to, I would like to do something maybe in this that looks sort of like this or in this style, or you, you kept trying to, um, you know, stay current or stay stay hot, you know, with some of the themes. And so that's how we would sometimes propose things. We'd show somebody else's work or a style of, you know, you could, if you said Star Wars style, that would that would ring a bell and would sound good. You know, so you're always trying to pitch something based on something that, that the executives could relate to. Um, so we did the. Um, uh, I, I I knew about the Giger um, artwork. Um, very, I loved it. I've been trying, to, as I said, trying to talk um, the pinball or the Valley people into doing it. Um, a theme like that with something like that, not necessarily Space Invaders at the time, but well, then we. Um, then we got the Space Invaders. Um, anyway, we went home. They told me to go ahead and do Space Invaders, and I said, "Well, can I do the Giger, the Giger look stuff?" You know, because of the, um, you know, I'd been talking to him about it already, and so yeah, well, you know, as long as it isn't as disturbing as some of the stuff that they saw in the book, let's go with that. But then try to create a Space Invaders theme because it seemed to all tie in. Well, the problem was is that the the characters that are in his book look very much like Alien. And that's where they got the idea for Alien, you know. So they, right. it evolved from the Giger model, not from Alien. Um, but the timing, and then it, and again, I, I was, I said, look, this would be even better. Let's let's do Alien, you know. This would be, and um, and, and I, I'm going to back up one second. Actually, they didn't have Space Invaders license yet. They hadn't decided to make it a game yet, but they knew about Alien. They knew about um, my presentation of the Giger type artwork. So that was that preceded. Space Invaders, as far as doing it as a pinball machine. Um, what, what ended up happening, they came down and told me they have passed on, they're going to pass on Alien, but why not do the Space Invaders theme with that look, with the, not the Alien look, but with the Giger look. And, and right. so that's how I began um, the Space Invaders graphic look. And it was, you know, if you ever saw Giger's work, all of his work is that biomechanical creature type, um, you know, uh, human robotic kind of combination, right. um, kind of thing. So that's what we use as sort of the, the graphics for it. And then we, and I was all into coming up with um, the. Um, and I was actually still hoping that they might change their mind and, and go with Alien, but um, they just again, they, and I forgot what the, the license was that was up at the time. I think it might have been, might have been six million dollar man, maybe. Um, there was a, there was another license at the time that they just they were going to go with that rather than um, than Alien. That's why they, cause they couldn't they couldn't do too many licenses, you know, at the same time. Otherwise, you dilute one for the other. Right, that right. was the thinking. So you wanted to put all your promotional effort into the the license game. Um, so you didn't want to have too many you know crossover licenses or, or overlapping licenses. Um, so so for some reason they pulled the plug on ever even doing Alien to go ahead with the. Um, the Giger look, and, we'll, and that'll, that'll be Space Invaders, and so that's how it all evolved. Um, you know, I thought I had made it different enough from Alien. I made it much more like kind of the characters from his book. It was more of an homage to him, to Giger, and his style than it was, because um, again, I had, I had only seen a little tiny doll of, of the character. I hadn't right. seen a lot of images of Alien. So, but then when it came out, um, I think 20th Century Fox felt that that we actually took from that. Um, that little doll, and we tried to we tried to rip it off, but that isn't really what happened. Although it, I can see where, um, I mean, there was enough similarity in that style that um, that they had they had a, you know, they had a case they could they could make a case for that. That was never the intention. We were I was hoping they were going to do Alien. I happened to Alien turns out to be one of my um, 
one of my favorite movies of all time. Did did they make a case of the whole thing? Did they they bring any action against you? You know, I think they did. I think, but what what I um, and this is what I know about it. They they you know they brought me in. They wanted to they they went over the sequence again, so to make sure that they felt that we you know this was there was never anything intentional. Um, they had and I was working right with um, there's a, a, a consultant that was working with. Um, with Bill O'Donnell and John Britz at the time, you know, so they could make sure that they, you know, the way the sequencing worked, because it was kind of a confusing thing that happened, and they didn't know what we had seen. They thought we had seen a whole bunch of pictures of this creature, and we had, they were, I, I still got the original um, synopsis they sent us with the photographs from the stage and the different characters, the characters, you know, Sigourney Weaver and all those characters, and but there was, there's nothing on there about the creature. The only thing we saw of a creature was a slide for about 10 seconds of a doll. And the doll, and the doll was a, wasn't even the color of the creature. Or so, but I, but I knew because of this H.R. Giger that this was going to be something special. I mean, this was going to be, because I, I was very familiar with his work. It was kind of a fan of his. I actually, even now, as I look up here in my studio, I've got a huge life-size head of the alien character in my studio, because it's, you know, it's one of my, I, I thought it was a very, um, you know, very dynamic movie that was very, you know, a, a turning point in terms of how movies were done about space things, you know, much more realistic and, um, you know, tried to avoid the man in the rubber suit idea that all works, and he's, he's one of my favorite directors now. Hmm. So, um, but the, they, the action, as I understand it, and I think it was just, what happened was, and this is in the days, this is what I understand now, so I don't know how accurate all this is, because we just went on about our business and kept on working, and um, the... Um, you know, you're always sometimes you're close in those things where you're close to being uh, using something that looks like something else, but that's sometimes like the thing with the Fonzie thing. That wasn't so much to try to reproduce Fonzie; it was to kind of reproduce that feeling. You know, something that right. was popular, and and now it's much more you know carefully monitored because nobody really cared that much about pinball art in the past. I think if, if you look back, there's always been themes that were kind of representing um, American culture at the time that weren't necessarily rip-offs or something of somebody uh, look-alike. But as the artwork got more and more realistic, that potential existed. So uh, Now, ab- about this time, um, Dave Christensen really seemed to be kind of out the door now. What, ha- what happened to Dave? Um, let me think. It's hard for me to remember exact timelines of things. And um, the... Um, the uh, was that about this? Was it about that time? I guess it might have been. He did, but he did a game called... Um, Something like um, a la Parisian or something like right, that. It was right. a, kind of a um, European theme. Yeah, it didn't get made. What's that? It did not get made. Oh, okay. I, I remember him working on it. I think that yep. might have been the last. Um, I don't want to say too much here because there's some personal thing, issues and things that were affecting his, um, you know, just affecting life um, for him in general. You know, there was a, it was kind of a tumultuous time for him. Um, but and also he really never. Um, he did a game called um, another hot rod game. Oh, what's the name of it? Now? Yeah, Nitro Ground Shaker. What's it called? Nitro Ground Shaker. Yes, and that one he did as a that's a four color process game. Mm-hmm. And um, but he did it in his in his method, and then went back and did you know paint actually painted the the solid colors, and um, it was well received as I remember, and it was um, um, amazing it was, artwork on it. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. He, Again, the work, the, the work was never a question with him. It was more things were getting, um, his life was affecting things in, in terms of his work. Um, 
we were moving to uh, we're, we're going to move our location to Bensonville, uh, so we were changing locations. He lived in the city. Um, there were a number of things that were going on. He was he was getting kind of um, disenchanted, I guess would be the way. And again, I have to in his in his defense, you have this bunch of young artists coming in with all kind of new ideas. You know, he he didn't know Star Wars from <coughs> from Adam. You know, he he has a whole different sensibility about what what his what he would like to see on games, and he was, and I think it was always it wasn't always wrong either. I mean, it was it was less current and pop. It was more classic, I would say, and right. a lot of European influence. Some um, growing pains going on just in terms of a department that was went from uh, you know a couple of artists to um, I think we ended up with twenty three people at um, hmm. at the full size of the art department. Yeah, Dave. Dave was kind of uh, um, you know at least that's kind of my impression. That it, I mean. Was that maybe Im- impacting his work a bit? Well, uh, you know, this is this is one of those things you want to be. Um, yeah, you want to be careful, <laughs> right? Yeah. I do because I I, so I still have a tremendous respect for him. I just say um, he was going through some things. I know he had he had gotten uh, robbed and and uh, people he got mugged at, at his house and um, all these things were kind of going on and um, they were impacting. Um, impacting what he would do and, and he, again he was he's kind of a cantankerous guy even on a good day you know i mean he's, they call him mad dog I and mean, that was his, right. his nickname you know and when you meet him i don't know if you've ever met dave but um if you meet him he's kind of this um kind of quiet nebbishy type guy you know in terms of how your first impression is but he can be he can be you know like his artwork reveals he can be all over the place and very a very colorful but i don't think in dave's case he was he wasn't really meant in his in his mind, I don't think he ever accepted the idea of being part of a whole department team, you know, right. like a whole valley team kind of thing. That was um, was always a little tough for him. And and um, and again, I think that I don't think he was ever really comfortable with the direction that some of the whole movie business was going. And um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't going to see those movies. He wasn't part of that in his own head. He wasn't embracing that, you know. And so it's, it's kind of like sticking yourself, you know, with great talent, but maybe not. Um, coming up with ideas that would um, be yeah, that as some of the other yeah. people were coming up. And again, that all the designers were young guys at that point. And I say young, I'm talking about you know 30s, early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and, and that's what the, kind of the majority of the um, the people that were doing a lot. Of, even you know Tom Neiman at the time. He's I'm 61 now, and Tom is um, younger. I think he's four or five years younger than I am. So that was where that was the the marketing motivation and where some a lot of the uh, um, perception of what would be good themes. That's where that. That's where that was coming from. A lot of that, or our brainstorming in the art department did a lot of it too. And again, so he was kind of. I think he felt himself kind of a maverick, you know. But it was right. getting difficult sometimes. To, uh, the problem with when you're successful like that, you really have to hit your deadlines. You have to be able to turn things out much more quickly because there's a, you know, you're 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 producing much many more games, building a whole new factory just to produce games because it was so popular at the time. It was the Top dog of you know the entertainment right. world at that time, and that's just as as the video games were coming in, and so I think that all had an impact. You know, um, I don't think he was ever um, thrilled about going out to um, to Bensonville, which was where they're going to move all of us um, out near O'Hare Airport to do uh, the whole art department was moved out there. The slot machine art department stayed. Actually, um, I was I was in charge of all of that, and that got to be sort of difficult to do because you have these. Um, I think we had four artists working just on slot machines, and we were the number one manufacturer of slot machines at the time. Um, and, it, again, that art certainly was not the same 
did not fulfill the same kind of artistic challenge um, that that the uh, pinball stuff did, and it was more, you know, um, done um, right. necessity of you know supply supporting the product. Right. And so that stayed in, in at the downtown office in Valley uh, at um, in Chicago, I should say, and then the pinball division moved out to Bensonville, and that's I think when when Dave left, and um, um, and I, I know he did a um, he did a second. Uh, uh, fireball. He did a Fireball Classic. Right. And that was uh, that was also done in four color process. Hmm. So I mean, it, you know, his work was was. Um, yeah, it could go in either direction. Yeah, he could go line. He could do the you know the the line ink stuff or the four color. And he um, and he did a good job with it. But I just don't think he ever embraced it because I think he thought. Well, first of all, when you when you paint a glass, it's a lot faster than when you do. Uh, the elaborate ink drawing, and then you yeah, do the all the, the, the screen separations. And he did all his own separations. What, one of the things I did when I started this department is I brought in two artists before I even hired Kevin O'Connor to do to be production artists to, to take our ink drawings and then cut the separations right. from our color. And that's, that became kind of a standard in the industry. Where everybody, you know, very rarely would the artist who was the inker, like in comic books, you have an inker and you have somebody that does the, the color work. And so we kind of... Um, did it like that, um, Dave would actually do all his by hand. And so they were really crafted. They were, you know, beautifully crafted. Right. And so I'm, I'm not knocking them at all. It just was, from a production standpoint, it was... Um, yeah, it didn't work as well. Well, yeah, it just slowed the process down at a time when they, you know, they were, you know, you didn't want to slow anything down because it was, it was, things were going great. Right. You hired, uh, what, Margaret Hudson. She was your production artist. Right. She was my first. She and Margaret Hudson and a, and a woman named Mary Beth Bush... Mary Beth worked with Dave, and um, and uh, but again, um, that didn't always work out because he wanted, you know, he, Dave was a very controlling guy. He wants to, you know, right. if if I've got a shade on this particular person's arm, I want it to be the way I do it, not the way it looks on a. And he, he didn't even work with color sketches much at all. So um, Mary Beth worked on slot machines as well, and became uh, she ended up becoming the advertising person in house that did all took care of all of our brochures and. It was very good graphic artist, and just, just, we brought that in house. We took that away from outside agencies and did it all in house, and she took care of all that. And that, that's how she evolved. And Margaret ended up becoming; she still does. Um, you know, when there are, are pinball play fields to do for some people that still do it, um, she still does that. I mean, she still does the hand separations. She still she did a couple of um, actual games herself. Um, so she developed. Uh, you know, she was a. Um, an art major from Southern Illinois University, and so right. she was uh, you know, had a had some illustrative ability, but she was very good with detail and and very. And I knew that whoever was going to take the role of doing the screens for someone who does very detailed art was going to have to, you know, appreciate detail herself. And she did a very good job and really, be, you know, developed a career out of it. I mean, she she could always do the the production stuff and as well as the the, the back glass and the illustration part um, later on. She was able to do that too. So. Okay, we're going to take a little break from talking with Paul Ferris, the artist that worked for Bally in Data East, and we'll be back after this message. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of TopCast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal is for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Paul Ferris, the artist for Valley and Data East. We're coming up on the on the big dogs of your career here. 
Man, I mean, Xenon was like, that's a, a stellar game. You sold, man, you sold a lot of them, 11,000 of them. I mean, what, uh, tell me a little bit about the development of that game and, and the artwork in it. Okay, actually, um, that was going to be our first um, voice um, game, as I remember. Um, it was, and the thing that made it unique was the first female voice in the, the industry. I think uh, Williams had come out with a game at that time with a male voice in it. and um, Yeah, that'd be Gorgar. Right. I'm trying, to, you know, I'm trying to remember all these specific games and timing. But um, so we um, we actually went. Tom Neiman and I went out to the East Coast and met with a um, uh, young lady who was a name, her name is Suzanne Chiani, and she's she's actually become uh, fairly famous in the um, new age music realm and, and electronic music, and um, and she was she was doing um, digital logo. Um, type things for movies. I think she did the Columbia Pictures um, sound logo. When you see the woman at the end of the picture, the movie or the introduction of the movie, you'll see this woman holding her, you know, holding a, a torch, kind of like a Liberty, or I guess it's Columbia actually. But um, and and there would be a um, there's a sound that goes along with that. And she developed that, and she was in the business of doing a lot of those things for different uh, major corporations. And so she's a pretty clever lady, and. Um, it was actually her voice that was the voice on there, and, and she came up with some of the sounds for the um, for the game itself. So we knew we had a female character that was had to be developed. And it just was a, that was one of those uh, projects you got to kind of come up with your own idea, kind of like Paragon and Lost World and some of those other ones. And um, so we kind of came up with this, um, I, mean, I didn't ever, I've never really actually articulated what it was, but it was sort of an alien type woman, but uh, very sensuous and, um, and sort of in a futuristic society, you know, that was sort of the, because the game had this transport tube on uh, on the actual play field, so we had to try to tie a theme into that. And uh, the name was sort of trying to come up with something that was sort of exotic sounding and, and, you know, very futuristic. And, you know, we used this something from the periodic tables, you know, xenon gas and... Um, so it was just kind of, it was a fun project. And it said, um, it... it Obviously had um, you know different sounds to it, sort of sensuous sounds at times, and then um, the female voice, which was unique for the business at that time. You're always trying to come up with a new, um, I'm going to call it a gimmick, but um, each each game had its own sort of special uh, feature you try to play up. And of course, the two things on that were the physical this transport tube, which was the second level a little bit, and this is I think right before they actually started to do two-level play fields and um, some of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and um, and it was, yeah, it was a, I really enjoyed the game, and it was, I think it was, a, you know, an attractive package. And, um, and again, it was one of those, when you, when you have a licensed property that you have to do, you're, you're restricted by you know, the licensee, I mean, he, um, or the licensor, I should say. And, you know, they, they give you stuff, they tell you how, the, you know, like with Playboy, I mean, we had done a piece of artwork that we would have probably used, but then Hefner, as a licensor, came in and, and modified it for their preferences, and which was fine. Actually, it turned out to be a great piece. But um, with a with our own piece, you know, we could we just had to kind of please all the designer and the and marketing and the executives involved, and um, and that one um, that one um, went over pretty well. Now the the girl on the on the back glass was there and did you use any particular model or anything? That one I didn't. You know, used it and I as you know as I've told you before, I you know, I've used members of my family or people I knew. Um that one I actually didn't. 
um, was just sort of created out of, out of my out of my head. Um, she had sort of somewhat alien proportions in her head size and, and sort of this bluish skin color. And, um, but what we did do at the AMOA show, um, we um, got a model and actually interviewed models that looked somewhat like the girl and cre- had a costume created that, and she was, you know, she was at the game, she was alongside the game right. of the show, and, um, and and it was so in the brochure you'll see a um, a girl that looks somewhat like the girl in the glass, but the girl in the glass was created first. Then we kind of did a little search to try to find somebody that kind of a, uh, had a similar appearance. Have you ever put um, drawn yourself in any back classes? Yeah, I did on um, Paragon. Those are. Uh, Paragon, Lost World was not, but the, the characters were created. Uh, um, I had a full beard, beard at the time, and was I think I mentioned that I was a, a weightlifter, powerlifter, wrestler, you know, that kind of physical type guy, and um, so that's why I used my wife and I on Paragon, hmm. um, and that's the only one I can say that I ever used myself to, to be my, you know, to be virtually look like me. But um, other, other times, you know, my my kids and my and some friends, you'd have them pose for you in a pose that would be appropriate for the, you know, particular backlash thing. But it's more for the anatomy and the, and the motion and the action. It wasn't necessarily for their likeness, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, Paragon, uh, Paragon's the only one. Do you own any pinball machines today? Oh yeah, I have. Um, I have six, I believe. Um, I have. Um, I have a Lost World because that was very, very important to me and and it was in terms of the industry about that whole printing process that made it possible right for painting you know uh, to do paintings on glass which was hugely important to me um and i have a centaur i have a um you think those are the two bally games i have because when i worked for bally you didn't get games necessarily as part of your you know your part of your salary or anything you you had to you know arrange to buy them um, but with um, then I went on later and was a freelancer and I worked with um, Dady East and then Sega Pinball, which was basically the same company. And I have a Frankenstein. I have a um, what else? Do I have? Oh, I have a Phantom of the Opera. Mm. I had a Back to the Future. And uh, I'm, I'm missing two. I forgot what else I have. But the, yeah, I've um, and it, for me they're more rep- they're fun to play, obviously, but. Um, they're more um, sort of the representations of different periods of my career in the pinball business, and, and they have more of a nostalgic um, meaning for me. You know? Not just to have a um, games in my basement, but um, they represent you know a time in, in that part of my career. So uh, you know, enjoy them for that reason too. But my grandkids love to play them, and um, they're uh, still <coughs> still fun to see. So now we went to Centaur, and I mean Centaur. As far as like pinball machines go from this era, Centaur was like ahead of the curve, um, as far as like gameplay and features, and the artwork was um, really stunning. In that you did so much with so little color. I mean, basically, it, it looks like there's just three colors: black, white, and red. Exactly. You you did your homework. Um, that was that was the intention. It was when you're always competing. You know, in the way, it, the way at least the way we um, developed our ideas for graphics and so on, you're always trying to come up with some way to get somebody over there to play a game, and they can stand out from another game and get their first quarter. And um, that was at least that's how we 
uh, try to develop the graphics. So they had to really grab you. And, you know, if it was a, um, four or five games in a, in a bank at, a, at an arcade or a location, which they were many times, um, you wanted to have something that was kind of grab you different, uh, you know, either current with a licensing theme or, as I said, in pop culture at the time, you try to cap- capitalize on something that was happening at the time um, that would, you know, would strike a chord with somebody that wouldn't just be a repetition of the same old theme. And I, I proposed to Mark, and it was a little hard for them to grasp it at first. I mean, they, they were a little bit unsure. Uh, I said, well, let's try, why don't we try something that would be the opposite of having all these bright, shining, you know, bright, uh, warm, hot colors and, and just do a very um, strong graphic black and white game with a few accents of red um, to, to pop it out. And then the, we came up with a theme that was sort of this... Um, uh, mythological, but again, kind of a biomechanical um, creature that was a sort of being a horse and a man. It was a motorcycle and a man kind of combination, and um, and the the black leather and all that was to, to kind of tie in that you know to emphasize that black and white theme. Uh, and then the red was, of course, just for the accent. And and it, you know, I think it was pretty successful. I still like it a lot even today. Great, great game. It, it sold about five thousand units, which was you know. Half of what you were selling with, you know, Space Invaders and Xenon, but I, that maybe that was an indication of the of the environment, um, you know, the marketing environment, or not so much the game. I think it was more a reflection of the industry at the time. The industry, right? right. You know, we were talking before. If you fo- follow a curve of how that you know the industry was at its peak, you know, with with the uh, Eight Ball and Playboy and some of those early electronic games, and then pinballs because of the competition from video games. We're, we're heading the other direction, and you know, and so it was. Yeah, that was a, that was considered a very successful game. And I got to give Jim Patla a lot of credit on that because he was a designer of that game as well. And Jim was always known as a designer that designed a game, but then went down, you know, to the production line and kind of made sure everything functioned correctly and everything went smoothly on it to get it into production because um, he really, you know, shepherded his games through and really had a great deal of um, care for his games. Now, was Centaur was not four four color process, right? Because it was four color process. Even though there's only three colors. Yeah, I mean, it was because again, it's it's and it's, it's sort of hard to explain a little bit, but the the ability to paint it was a painting, a black and white painting with black and white, and then all the gray tones that are in there too. It wasn't just black and white; it was you know the subtleties of gray as well, and that is only something you can do in four color, um, unless you know there's there are tricks you can do with a with black where you do little dots or something but um yeah actually the four color process is actually um you know there's probably maybe 35 different <clears throat> variations of gray in there as well as the black and white so you have all the the blending of the of the tones and um so there's the same kind of sophistication you want in a painted piece with all all colors um still was um, able to be done with um the four color process, making it gray, you know, and the different shades of gray. So it's it's more the more the painting technique than it was um, the limitation of the color, you know. Now, why the bug like eyes on the on the girl on the playfield? A little bit of uh, again, it's sort of this um, you know uh, parallel universe or um, you know uh, other uh, you know some other some other place. Um, sometimes you don't define where it is. You know, you just sort of say it's somewhere in time. And she had this sort of, yeah, sort of um, either insect-like or you could think of it as um, some kind of uh, implant-type um, area thing instead of um, for her eyes. I mean, just just a uh, 
um, kind of a, a light-sensitive sort of uh, implant. You know, I guess was my thinking at the time. I'm trying to remember because I it wasn't. You, you don't sit down and write a whole book, but you sit down and sort of create sort of a, a backstory or a mythology a little bit of the for the game. So you have so when you draw something up in the left-hand corner, it's not something that has to be a piece of clip art or something that comes from nowhere. It has a sense to that there is sort of a story going on in that. Um, in that game, even though it's not a, you know, not so literal that you have to show, you know, the, all five characters and you have to show them doing this in this episode. It's not like that, but you have a backstory that kind of creates the elements for the for the game. So the whole idea of Centaur was, and even the name was all your brainchild. Yes, I mean again, again, well, we we kick things around uh, sometimes in, in the department itself because we were back at that point. We were back at uh, we were over at uh, Bensonville, which was just for manufacturing pinball machines. We were separate from the the, the main facility over on uh, which, which used to be the corporate headquarters on in downtown Chicago. And um, so this the group over there was all we're all pinball illustrators. And there's um, so sometimes we just kick it around as a group among us and say and. and for for a couple of reasons, you you know there would be several different games that would be being worked on at the time that were Whitewoods, and you wouldn't want you know four guys going off doing a uh, <clears throat> a cowboy theme or something at the same time. You have to make sure that these things were all kind of um, developed you know appropriately and kind of separately. And um, so we would kick ideas around back there many times. So I and that one I think pretty much was my idea because I had to come up. I had this idea for a graphic plan of black and white and a red accent. And I had to come up with a a graphic theme that um, actually tied you know tied together with the color. So the color idea came before the the, the concept to to use that you know. Um, and yeah, but I have to say that um, and I, I won't I won't uh, deny that a little bit of that biomechanical stuff came out of doing the Space Invaders thing. The the, the H.R. Giger that was that's his what he was most noted for was this um, you know. Um, biomechanical, they call it biomechanical, where you have this sort of combination of, you know, human right. elements or, or animal elements that are tied in with mechanical elements in one, in one creature or one, one body. And, and that was a little bit of that influence, um, kind of reemerging again. It was, it was later, but, uh, kind of it was a few years later, but, um, it was kind of a, um, kind of a cool theme, we thought, at the time. So, and there were people that, um, you know, I remember, I remember the, the Frank Bracca, who was our, um, VP in charge of the electronic pinballs, and and he he could not grasp how anybody in the world would want to walk up and play that game because was, you know look at this thing it's ugly he said I wouldn't I wouldn't want to come up and play this thing so I just remember you know kind of battling about that and and I will say Bally was always very supportive because you know our gut instincts at the time uh, and our kind of our own sort of our research that we did sort of. Um, you know, casually on our own, not not some major focus group type stuff. But um, you know, when artists would come in, I had this idea, and it's you know, it's not too far fetched. They would be very supportive and listen, and and usually trust us um, because we were you know about the age of a pinball player, you know, at the time, or a lot of pinball players. So they were pretty trusting, and um, and it did, it was controversial, but it definitely got a lot of play. And, and, and as we said, that we were, at this point we were trying to come up with things that almost jarred, you know, jolted people a little bit because we were fighting for pinball money now. I mean, for uh, video game money. Right. So these, you know, it was it was a huge change in the industry, and it, I mean, it got a lot worse before it got better. And um, you know, that was kind of a, you know, that was a. 
for a lot of us, that was the first time we'd ever seen that. I, from the time I went to Bali, everything was going up. You know, when I started in 70, right, the late 75, early 76, um, you know, that's when everything started to go up in terms of sales and uh, appreciation for pinball and the whole legalization of pinball in Chicago and, and uh, you know, the electronic games and all. That was a great period. And then this, all of a sudden, now we were struggling for sales. We used to just be able to make any game we wanted. And there was even some arguments in those days, you know, about the license property. Do we really need these? You know, do we need to license games anymore? Because you pay a license, and then, you know, the game would have sold that much anyway. And that's and that's where Tom Neiman used to say, yeah, we might get ten thousand games without a license, but then if you go to twenty, it's that phenomenon of it's you know you got a, a, you know, a pop culture icon right. type project, and it would it would give you that much more money. So. Now, what's, um, there was another Bally game. It was called Bigfoot. Did you have any association with that? I did do that, yeah. Um, that was, um, I'm not even sure if it ever got manufactured. I remember we made one game, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that went to a, a trade show. But it came out of a competition with um, this upstart company, Atari, had come up and made, I think they might have made three different pinballs, if I have three different models. And they also had, well, what was it? I think it was called Hercules or something something major like that, and they had this, you know, big, um, it, was, it was actually way oversized. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hercules was huge. I mean, it was like, you know, three pinball machines. Okay, and, and again, this was at a time when, when everybody sits down to brainstorm, you know, what do you do to take away the same old, same old, you know, pinball, it's another pinball game, you know, because the market was getting pretty, I don't want to say flooded, but it was getting pretty saturated with um, as many, as, as difficult as it was to make, New and different games. They were the perception was they're a lot of the same old, same old, and um, and then all these new video these video games seemed like you know amazing things. To, from I think there was Sea Wolf, and then there was Space Invaders, and then you know these games that were um, suddenly you know making and they were much cheaper to manufacture, or at least they were much simpler to manufacture, I should say, uh, right. than a pinball. So there was a lot of competition. You know, so um, trying to come up with things that would be, you know, did you see that big game at Bally's booth? Did you see that big game at Atari? And um, so these were all kind of market-driven um, inspirations to try to, uh, you know, to try to get something new in the marketplace. Because once you get a, a manufacturing line set up, you know, like the automobile industry, they don't like to change, you know, in the middle of, the, you know, be like a job shop. They want to kind of manufacture and refine the manufacturing process for each model and then come back with a new one. Every time you add something new and different, it creates a you know a manufacturing nightmare sometimes. So um, so they were when things were going great, they were a little bit reluctant to do that. But um, as the market was starting to change, they were trying to come up with some new and different things. You know, um, I remember doing when I was doing Bigfoot, we had a, um, a visit from another from an artist, um, a guy named Alan Aldrich, that came in and worked with us for about a week. And he was known as, um, he'd done some uh, work with the Beatles when they were um, doing some, did some album cover artwork and stuff for, for the Beatles. He's an Englishman. And he came over to work on um, a game that was going to be sold as a home pinball. And it was um, based on uh, Elton John. It was an Elton John themed piece because Elton John was very big at the time. And it was called, it was the... Um, um, oh, I forgot the name of it now. Anyway, it was a the, the, based on the collaboration of um, Elton John and Bernie Taupin, who were who were writing albums together, and um, and there was a potential for a, a bunch of characters that um, uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy was the was the two 
was the name of the two characters, and it was going to be kind of an animated uh, cartoon type piece or movie. And and the whole idea of putting that that artwork that would look like the movie was was being done by Alan right while I was working on Bigfoot. So that's one of the reasons that Bigfoot stands out in my my mind because we were and, and actually when we did Bigfoot, we were still over at um, at the uh, office in in downtown or the north north side of Chicago at, at Valley headquarters. And we Alan kind of took another drawing table in the um in the art department and just worked along with us and then sent the artwork in. I think they did manufacture that game from from Montgomery Wards and sold it as a home pinball. Right. So that's kind of how well, I remember Bigfoot because I was working on that when he, this fairly famous guy came into town and was working with uh, with us and you know I was taking him around Chicago and showing him you know different um different elements of the city and he got to meet Dave Christensen and cuz Dave was still working with us and it was an interesting time, to say the least. Yeah, so. so now, after Centaur, it looks like you. Uh, it looks like you left Bally and went to Game Plan. Is that what happened? No. So okay. Uh, let me think. Um, what it, what ended up happening was, as again, the industry went in. I think it's about nineteen eighty three. Three. Yes. Okay. I'm trying to remember the time. That's about when I think the pinball business would edit was at almost its lowest ebb, because I mean they started downsizing um, a lot of the Bally. Um, product um and um and i'm trying to think there i thought there was one more game i did after that but i can't remember to be honest we were doing i mean i was working on some of the video product we were doing uh, we, we had moved over to midway's facility and combined the art we had gone from bensonville um and then moved over to actually midway's facility which is in franklin park right nearby but so we had moved the whole department over there because it then was sort of in they had Combined the executives, and they had kind of downsized the company, and and the, and, um, and there was actually talk at that point of you know not even doing pinball anymore. I mean, they were they had reached a pretty low ebb, and um, and then I, almost everybody had gone from the art department. They were getting it down to just a skeleton-sized um, crew, actually, at art department, and um, and that's when I mean I knew that we could see that the that the the end was coming, or that you know, it was going to be very, very tough to keep doing some of the things we had done before. So I, I built a studio in my home, and kind of had this plan of whenever you know the bottom falls out of all this, because again, this is my first experience with this. With you know that things can go up, but they also can go down. Even if you're doing all the right things, you know the market has is what controls all that. Um, so then, I, then I did leave, and I think they kept maybe two people, um, two or three people, that just to kind of run a a skeleton crew in the art department, um, and that's the time when I think right after that's when uh, Williams bought Bally. Um, not too long after that, bought the actual pinball line and merged it in with the Williams line. And Williams actually was um, actually kind of saved pinball at that point. Now I may have my chronology a little off here, but I'm trying. This was all happening about the same time because when I, when there was you couldn't even give a pinball away for a while. Um, Williams kind of shut their doors on manufacturing and went back and kind of retooled and, and came up with a, um, I think it was Space Shuttle was the name of the game, if right. I remember right. And they, that was a very successful game. Again, pinballs had almost vanished from, if you can believe that, from, from arcades and they were fighting with all these great video games and these, the Japanese imports that were coming in and, and, and really kind of overrunning the, the, um, the arcade business with, um, with video games. And pinballs were kind of seen as the old, you know, old school and dinosaurs, and 
um, and uh, the space shuttle kind of revived pinball um, to some degree, and then there was a resurgence during the, um, if I remember right, kind of the later 80s, from about, I think, 86. Um, but if I have my, again, my chronology is a little messed up because it's all kind of hard to remember in, in, in linear form. But um, Well, how did you get to game plan? I didn't actually go to game plan. I was, I was, um, and again, you may, your list of games may not be accurate. I've seen different lists of games that I've done that are not mine. I've seen different, you know, at times, but uh, I did one game for game plan because I had started my own business as a freelancer. And it was called Paragon Studios, and, and I did not just pinballs because obviously, um, they said pinball was not, you know, there weren't a great deal of pinballs, but game plan was trying to come out with pinballs at that point. When, when Bally came, or when Williams came back into the game with a space shuttle, and it was a success, there was this sort of uh, this uh, feeling that the pendulum had swung back in terms of a resurgence of pinball, and um, and that there was you know the people that know how to do this, if they manufacture them, there's a market out there again, and so Game Plan had come in with I think they did a um, a game Roger Sharp was on. Um, yeah, Sharpshooter. Sharpshooter, but I didn't do that. I, some places some. Some people, I get credit for that, but I didn't do it. I'm not even sure who did. Yeah, Sharpshooter, they, they, uh, Pinball Database credits you as doing Sharpshooter 2 and Andromeda. I did do Andromeda. I did not do Sharpshooter. Um, okay. And Andromeda it was a game they called me in and said they, uh, you know, had a, uh, again, in those days it was about, you know, can you do this quickly or, you know, can we get this done? And, and in a short time they, they, they would bring in some, um, experienced people and um, and try to get them to you know do it as an outsource. They didn't have people work for them to do it. They were, you know, you do it like any kind of graphic project you do as a as a freelancer. And I did do that. I actually did. I was doing several different things at that time. You know, just I was starting my own business, and um, so I was doing some video game stuff, some advertising brochures, which actually were a lot of fun because you could do illustrations for the product. You know, and, and kind of a simulation of the game but this is before you had you know high resolution digital graphics that they use now for you know characters from the game you would as a advertiser i would do an illustration of the characters on the game that would be very much like a pinball game so that was kind of fun to do that stuff um, and it was very lucrative and um you know it was um but it would so the Andromeda, how, what was the thinking behind the Andromeda artwork and i mean did you have to did you work with roger sharp or ed Kabula, or was it like because you were um, at your own studio, you didn't really interface? And I and I so I would you know go in, we'd brainstorm. But I, what, what, the way it worked then is they showed me the game. Um, I'd go back, work on some concepts, and then bring in the the, the color cat concepts and show them my ideas. And they, they so that's great. And again, this is sort of again that sci-fi, um, <clears throat> you know, other world type. Um, um, character um, again, pr- pretty prevalent in the movies at that point. Pretty well received. Um, you know, Star Trek and all that stuff was going on in the movies, and of course, um, just a great. There's quite a few very successful sci-fi movies, and that's also an, an arena that I I love to work in. So, um, so I presented this idea again. It's sort of a, um, a woman from another another universe, and you know, she had you know, several eyes, but she was still kind of um, sensuous and. Actually, although my daughter's not pleased to tell people, my daughter was a model. That was the first time she modeled for me, and she was the model for that character. Obviously, she doesn't have that many eyes, but she doesn't have four <laughs> eyes. But she's um, she was beautiful, and 
Uh, I think she was about 17, 18 at the time, and so she was my um, she would, um, agreed to model for me, and, and we did that game. So it was kind of a fun, you know, not not a lot of heavy direction by them. Just they just said, okay, you know, we know you've got experience. Come up with something that would be cool, and and we and we tried to. So um, that, so that's how that happened. And it, again, this was just a a company that was trying to you know do different things and get back in a pinball market. And Ed, Ed was a terrific guy. I mean, <clears throat> and he, he was um, he went on to um, I worked actually more closely with him when he went to Data East. Right. And then I did um, a game which is one of my favorites, and it was a very cool project to do. It was now maybe I'm jumping ahead for you, but I think it was about the next project I did anyway. Was was uh, Phantom of the Opera? Well, yeah, because now you kind of had this lag. I mean, Andromeda. Well, well, wait. There was one other thing too. Uh, in 1986, you did some artwork for Williams on the Grand Lizard, right? Oh yes, uh-huh. and that that turned out to be not a very satisfying project from a finish standpoint. But it, and again, there's all I've. Um, I should probably back up a second. Again, they were they had their own um, a few of their own artists that were in house. Um, I think Connie Mitchell was still working there, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and they again they had had this resurgence in pinball and. and um, Steve Kordek and some of the design, Barry Osler I know was one of them and they had kind of revived pinball to some degree and um, so they had a game that had been scheduled for production it had been it's kind of I want to say sitting around but they were trying to work it in but they only they realized now they only had a month to get the artwork done and get it in production now four weeks for a pinball machine is not a lot of time especially when you have to go back and forth and please marketing and but I, but I agreed to do it and because uh, I was, I, I just any time there was a chance to do a pinball, you know, first of all it's a comfort level, but it was it was a great package product because you tie everything together and you know it, it paid well, but it also was fun to create an entire package that all related to the same theme. You know that that's that was you know it's one of those largest package designs you could ever do. So I was always excited about doing pinballs um, when I had the opportunity. I was actually working very hard on other projects, not to, not even in the pinball industry, but. Um, you know, outside the game business as, as a as a new company and, and we were doing I had you know different um, production artists was work, artists working for me I'd finished my studio and have this you know tremendous studio now that um, from that time so I was um, you know in, enjoying a lot of other work but when a pinball came up I would try to give it priority and this was a tough one you know it was a month to do it and um, so I came in with some sketches to show them I think I showed them three or four different sketches of ideas and the idea there was uh, again the sci- sci-fi theme with um, you know, uh, like some um, astronauts that have landed on, a, on another planet, and we come, came across this race of um, of mandrills or kind of baboon type, you know, baboon human type creatures, and you know, was in a uh, a fight for his life in, in, in on the back glass, and then he just kind of tied those themes in with um, that storyline on the playfield, um, and I did actually did an oil painting of that and. Uh, were very well received by everybody at Williams, and um, now there's two stories. And I know uh, I know several people from Williams that have told me one version, and then I, I know what, what I was told. But I completed the backlash, completed the whole playfield, and this was um, a game that the creature of the Grand Lizard was came from the head of Python Angelo. I don't know if you know anything about Python or sure. He had he was working for Williams as an artist and artist slash game designer at the time he wasn't a mechanical guy but he was a kind of a concept guy and knew you know kind of for ideas on games and things that he did he did comet and there's a couple different roller coaster themed games i know he did and um so anyway so this was his his 
character creation. He didn't. He wasn't going to have time to do it. And, and then they so they said, well, let's get Paul Ferris. He could probably do it in a month. And that's how I got involved. Well, once I did the glass, they were in a process of changing to um, alphanumeric displays, which right. were, you know, at that time, up until that time, all you could do was numeric. But then they were going to go with these alphanumerics that actually could do, um, you know, messages and information as well as the, the numbers. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but, again, you're in a business that's trying to come up with new things that, the competition doesn't have it was a pretty big a big thing at the time and my what they told me was that um that they had to redo the glass because they were going to make me they paid me and i got you know satisfied with they were satisfied with the whole project they paid me that was great but then they came back and and we're going to reconfigure the back glass for these openings for the alphanumerics that, that i mean i did not have room for in the way i did the artwork so huh. That's the story they gave me. But then, then I also heard, and it's um, um, Larry uh, Demar told me this, and I'm not sure uh, he was working for Williams at the time as one of their programmers. And uh, he said that when everybody there was happy with it um, in the United States, but he said when the German distributors came in, and many times the European distribution of pinball had a huge impact on what you did. I mean, we, you know, at Bally we. You had to change the KISS logo to a regular block S instead of an SS style, even though that was part of KISS's logo. But in Germany, you know, that was, that's taboo. So we had to make changes for them. And, and when France and Germany would come in as, as distribution, their distribution people would come in, uh, they had some impact on your themes. I mean, they could actually, you know, say, well, we can't, really can't use that here. And then they, they would listen to changing it, you know. Um, so when the Germans came in, and again, a lot, maybe half of the, Half of the sales of pinball were being done in Europe. Um, they apparently one of one of them didn't like the the theme of the game, and I and I don't know if it was the um, the that's kind of a dragon or lizard queen kind of in the piece that's and she's um, she's not she, but she's more she's more serpentine and lizard like than she is human, but she but she doesn't look like she has a lot of clothes on. Let's put it that way. Right. And uh, and I think um, you get nobody. Even Steve Kordak did not have any trouble with um, with the theme um, at Williams, but supposedly that that German um, group had some some difficulty with that, and, that, and that's why he said they changed it. So, so are you saying that your artwork never got used on the game? Well, let's put it this way: my art, my glass never got used. So I think they ran off about twenty pieces of glass for the, and I've um, I think I actually have one now that. Someone got for me. Some somebody at the pinball expo got a glass for me, and, and you know, just as it was, was very nice. So it and it came out. I'm really happy with the way the glass came out. It's actually my son on the glass. My son was about, I think, a senior in high school at the time, and um, was a wrestling, you know, champion, and and so he's the he's the astronaut in in battle with these um, uh, with these uh, mandrels, and uh, so. You know, I really liked the artwork. It's one of the ones I like, whether or not it got made or not. But the, but the playfield art was used. They changed the colors to match what Python Python redid a backlash, which was the backlash that was on the final production version. And they also modified the cabinet that I had on there too. I mean, to make it more like his glass. Now, I don't. Again, this was a crazy business. I was glad I got the project. I'm glad I did it. I got paid. And you know you move on, but right. So you got the playfield. Python did the back glass, and the cabinet was kind of yours. Yes, as I remember. 
I, I on the uh, what I had on the cabinet was a large version of the. Again, this was his. He came up with the name, and he came the idea of Grand Lizard was Pythons or, or Williams, but I think it was mainly Pythons. What, what did you think of Python? Well, Python's a character. I mean, you know, he's um, you know, he's a character, uh, but he's he's got some talent, and he, and again, I think at that point he was trying to become more involved, le- less of a pure artist, and more involved as a designer, game. yeah designer and influencer and stuff yeah but um he had some talent no question and and again i don't know if this was a project that he wanted to do and they kind of took away because he would there wouldn't be time because he was very cooperative with me and you know that and there can be ego clashing going on at that point but he at least in front of me <laughs> there was none i don't know if anything behind the scenes was going on or right. um because it, it was a very fast time period i was working you know very long hours to, to create that project in the time frame they had and it was it was a, you know it's a struggle because I had other other clients that I was working with at the time and to suddenly commit to one month on a project that normally would take you eight weeks to you know uh, six to eight weeks to do um, was um, pretty uh, pretty intense time so I was disappointed. Any any time you do I mean I've had some other artwork later on that I that I did too that I did you know threw myself into 100 percent I got paid but you know the game never sees the light of day for whatever reason you know. Right. Um, and um, it has nothing to do necessarily with your artwork, but it just means that they, for production reasons or marketing time or whatever, the game never never gets made. So then you, there was a little break between like '86, and then you went to Data East in like 1990. Well, actually, yeah, I did. I stayed as a freelancer. I, I I never went back and worked for any other company. I've always stayed a, a freelancer, and actually, I still freelance now, but I do much more selectively, and you know, only on projects I want to work on. I, I and I'll, I'll go into that later, but I. Um, um, I kind of became a little more selective about things, but um, but at that time um, I got a call from Joe Kamenko from, from Dadies, who I'd never met. I just had heard about him, and he's a you know bundle of energy and you know, very kind of creative, uh, you know, a guy that had made some some noise in the business with a I think it was called Loch Ness Monster. He did for Game Plan after I had done right. um, Andromeda. And he had followed the industry. His dad was involved as a distributor, and so he'd known all about the industry. Really knows about the history of the of the business, and he used to call it uh, in the new age of pinball. When um, when he started working at uh, Data East, um, he saw this as a resurgence of pinball, and he and he took it very seriously. Was you know very clever guy. Sometimes challenging to work with because he's he, he was very um, cha- you know very. Uh, uh, I don't want to say manic, but really a lot of energy and very intense. And uh, but he, call, he, I didn't know all that about him. And I, and I met him when he, when we, he called me up and asked if I want to come in and do a game. And ironically, it was a. Um, I, I said, anytime I can do a pinball, I'd love to have a shot. You know, doing pinballs because I still love the product. I was doing a lot of work and um, at that point outside the industry because I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen with the industry. Um, so you you know trying to diversify it as much as possible. And, but, and uh, this was the Phantom of the Opera he brought you in on, right? And it, when it, allegedly, I mean, actually in the beginning it was he brought me in. They had a pool theme game that they were going to do, and I came in to take a look at it and um, and said, yeah, I, I would be interested in doing this. And they kind of gave me some of their ideas for the the treatment of the game. And you know, again, it's another pinball, another pool theme, which you know every. Seems like every five years in pinball, there's a new pool theme because right. it's been so popular. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, and then I went, um, and, I, and I guess he didn't hear me or somehow misunderstood. But I went home, and then when I was on vacation for about ten days, um, 
and had told him, you know, I was going to come in and take a look at it, and then when I got back from vacation, I'd, I'd uh, give him this proposal. Well, you know, with Joe, there's no, um, and as I said, I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, uh, 10 minutes is a long time to not be contacting him, you know. So right. um, I got home, and I had all these messages on my phone. Um, this was before I had a cell phone or anybody did, I think, um, and there or many people did. And uh, I had all these messages about, you know, oh, where are you? I've got to talk to you. And and and, uh, and then he called me back in and said, well, we're not going to do the pool game now. Uh, I said, okay. And I thought maybe that was the end of the project. But, it, but he came up with this. I thought, for me, it was a brilliant idea. And Joe was always trying to come up with um, ways of impacting the market without having to spend a lot of money. Or um, this was still in the, you know, Data East infancy of pinball and um so he had this idea to do Phantom of the Opera, which was a which was on Broadway at the time and was making noise there as a Broadway play, um, but did not want to pay for a license. Um, and and really, when he researched it, the Phantom of the Opera, the book is in public domain. So you know you have the right to do it. You just have to do kind of your own version of it. You know. And huh. so what he did is he sent me home to read the book, which I did, and. And then kind of created my own Phantom of the Opera, you know, my what, what the, so my Phantom doesn't look anything like the one on Broadway. There's, you know, it's it's based on the book, not on the play, or the, on the musical. Or, um, but I enjoyed, really enjoyed doing it, and um, it was an oil painting. And on that one, I actually, my daughter is the um, is the heroine, the Christine Daae character, who's the love interest of the Phantom, and, and she's on the back class and. Um, and then my son's actually modeled in different poses to become the Phantom, and so it was a lot of fun to do. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Um, and we also did something, and they were very willing to try new things to capture attention. And I don't know if you've ever seen the game in person, or sure. But when you walk up to the game, you see um, the Phantom as a masked character with a hat on. Right. And, and then we, and that was actually a separate piece of glass that had screening on it, and then. The way we illuminated it was when there certain certain features happened during the game um, that were you know the, uh, as a build up to certain accomplishments on the game. Yeah, the mask kind of kind of melts away. Right, and then the, you see the horrible face of the phantom, so you unmask the phantom, which is part of the storyline anyway. And so I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, it, and it was tough. That was my first introduction to Joe, and so you know Joe wants to come over and look at the artwork every you know every five minutes basically, and I was <laughs> you know I was into this. I said I'll. I'll I'll drop the project, you know. I want. I this is the time I need, and um, and it, once I took it in, that was a great experience because they were all, you know, obviously all waiting for this to see, you know, hoping this was going to be good. And I remember um, when we took when I took the covering off the off the painting, they all applauded, you know. So it was kind of a neat neat thing for a guy who's a freelancer now and and doesn't have that interaction with um, with other. You know, executives and marketing people, you're, because you're basically working in a studio by yourself and you're in a vacuum. So, um, that's one of the things about freelancing that is wonderful, but it's also can be tough because you're not, you know, you're not getting that daily interaction with other artists and kind of kibitzing with other artists. And, hmm. uh, so anyway, that, that was a, I enjoyed that project. Um, I enjoyed the outcome. I love the piece. I have one of those in my basement. Um, and, uh, I was very happy with that. Yeah. Joe says that Phantom of the Opera was the game that put, Data East on the map. They sold a lot of units of that, and they they got a lot of acclaim for the for the game itself, especially for the artwork. So you know you did real good on that project. Well, I appreciate it. yeah. And I, again, we worked 
we work together. I make it sound like Joe. Joe, that's just Joe's personality. I'm not knocking Joe at all. I mean, he's, he brings a whole energy level to, you know, to, to that was just different, you know. And um, and I was I'm very thankful that he thought of me for that project because it was a it was a great theme for me too. I'm a, you know, in my past I've always enjoyed doing monster and sci-fi and you know that kind of um, genre. And uh, so this was perfect. I mean, and, and actually have to go back to the original source and then creating my own vision of it because I've seen movies and I've seen the play you know, and then trying to come up with, well, you know, what did, he, what did Gaston LaRue mean when he said, because he only describes the phantom, he doesn't doesn't give you a lot of description of what, you know, what that could be, you know, and where the um, Broadway play did a very, um, very, like um, almost slight disfigurement is all it was, you know, um, to be more theatrical. Um, I thought, you know, the, the face of death, in, especially in today's um, sort of work where everybody is very aware of very horrifying-looking things, you know, you'd have to come up with something pretty scary. So um, that was my version of it. So, yeah. Tell me, um, tell me about um, Total Recall. Okay, that was um, that's a, that's one of those games that um, they had this um, double pinball. It was like a V-shaped pinball playfield with two two playfields feeding into one head, one backlash head. Right, right. It was, yeah, exactly. I saw it at Expo one year, the, or the prototype. Okay. Um, so they had to come up with a theme. And again, this was when Joe and Gary, uh, but, you know, basically Joe was doing the, the footwork and, and Gary was going along with it because it was working. They were going to almost license every game. I mean, it was one of those things that I think Joe enjoyed the process of acquiring the licenses and coming up with one, you know, who would have thought of a Simpsons or who would have thought of, you know, it's, he, he was pretty diversified in what he brought out. And I have to say, I thought he was showed some genius there when, um, you know, with some of the themes he'd come up with. Some would, you'd say, well, there might be a car theme or something. you say, well, who's going to be into that? Well, you know, you find out that there's a pretty good market of, um, you know, young males that are out right. there um, that like that stuff. And, um, but with, with Total Recall, it was a property they had. It was Carolco as a company at the time that was doing um, some of um Schwarzenegger's um, films, and I think it was after Predator, if I remember right, and so this is the second movie they were doing after Predator. They since have gone and bitten the dust, but um, but they had contact, or Joe had contacted them about doing some project with them, and then uh, then they'll say, well, we've got this, and it was Total Recall. So we did the um, did the artwork, went out to California to talk to them, and and quite honestly, one of the fun things about this job, when I talk to students about becoming artists and commercial artists, that I often say um, sometimes your job description doesn't describe exactly what you're going to be doing. I mean, you you, um, you may not think that it has all these other perks. Well, in my case, a lot of the, uh, you know, as a movie fan and somebody who really loves the movies all my life, to, to suddenly be in that realm of where they're all made and talking to the, the you know, some of the actors and, um, you know, movers and shakers in that business um, in terms of, for pinball art was a was a side benefit that was very enjoyable. You know, it's one of those things I look back on and say, "Boy, that was a that was lucky time to be in that business." You know, um, so but we went out there and talked to Schwarzenegger's. We actually didn't meet Arnold there, but we eventually did meet him at a at a party for Back to the Future. But um, the uh, so to get, to get input from them, what they wanted, you know, and a lot of times it's you just find out what what visuals they want to see or if they have a theme they want or many times they just turn it over to you. You you send it to them and then they'll come back with comments and um, sometimes it'll be comments like on Batman, um, Michael Pe- Ke- Michael Keaton's um, 
people were very concerned about him not really having a comic book face. <clears throat> you know, they knew that when he got the when he got the role for the for Batman. So they had me kind of square up his chin and make his lips a little less full and <clears throat> things like that. Um, so, but in Arnold's case, it was um, it was just you know do a good job, and then we sent the artwork in. It got approved. They said you did a great job. Arnold was happy with it, and um, you know so that was it was very satisfying for that reason. Um, but, the but, game, but the game never got made. Never got made. Right, right. As I understand, yeah. I mean, I don't think it ever went out uh, even on test. I mean, sometimes they'll make a game, go out and put it on test, and decide, you know what, its cost of manufacturing isn't worth the you know, the, the gameplay it got when it was out. And right. So sometimes decisions are made like that. Now, what? Now you did um, Back to the Future next. Tell me about that one and in, in if you met any of the people in that film. Um, we did. Um, actually, <clears throat> Back to the Future was... Um, was a lot of fun to do too. That was one of my because one of my early projects with Data East. It was the first licensed game I had done with Data East. Actually, I, I I remember Total Recall being after Back to the Future. Now I could be wrong. No, no, you you could be quite right actually. Because um, I remember that we had already gone through the experience of the whole you know taking a trip to Hollywood with Joe and, and dealing with the people and that we did that on Back to the Future. Bob had um, I'm excuse me, not Bob. Joe had. Um, Got a connection with Bob Gale, who was one of the producers for Back to the Future. He, and, he, and, you know, give Joe credit, he just kind of just cold called this guy and said, I'm a pinball uh, engineer and I'm interested in doing some projects with you. I think it might even have been the guy from, from uh, Universal he was talking to initially, but then they, when they hooked up with Bob Gale, who had written the script for all the Back to the Future, it was his concept. Um, he, you know, he was, Turns out he's a big game player and a big game fan, and so he and Joe hit it off real well. And, and I think to this day they're still personal friends, you know. Um, but um, we uh, decided to take on this project, and it was already two Back to the Future games had been, or not games, but two Back to the Future movies had been done, and we were they were, in, they were shooting the third and getting ready to to release the third movie when we when he got involved in it. So you were going to do a pinball that captured all three. Games basically, or all three um, movies, I should more correctly say. And um, so we, you know, we did that. The, the only problem with that game that turned out when you get down to the end, you know, as, as, they're, as you're doing these projects, they're acquiring some. Some movie producers have the right to use everybody's image. Some, you know, contracts for the different, um, especially the main actors, they have their own agreements that. You know, they won't be used on anything else unless they get a piece of the action. And, and yeah, yeah, you couldn't use Michael J. Fox, right? Exactly, exactly. We were not allowed to use Michael J. Fox, and we, um, um, we you know, we just we, we ended up using um, Doc Brown um, was the same. Uh, he, he he was very, very excuse me, he was very fine with it doing it. And then uh, Michael J. Fox ended up for the painting was my son again. I inserted him in the same pose that they used on the poster. And, uh, and again, because of the lighting and everything else, it's not clear that it's not Michael J. Fox unless you look carefully. You know? So that was, right. and that was kind of a little bit of a bummer because it was, uh, Bob Gale was very um, upset at the time because you know he wanted to see the whole package represented because he, he was totally fine with the idea of a pinball machine. I think Michael J. Fox at that point was trying to branch into um, movies and not be the little kid type character or the um, I forgot the character's name in the in the. Um, Marty McFly. He didn't want to be Marty McFly the rest of his life, so he was getting encouraged to not. And then the other thing that um, the other thing that came up was that you know they just they just don't want to get a piece of the action. You know they want to be cut in for one of the, part of the the payments. You know for the for the license agreement. 
so we didn't do it. Uh, and by the way, if I if I go on too long, you can jump in any time because I'm just trying <laughs> to give you my recollection of the answer. No, you're okay. doing, you're doing great. Um, so I know you have a time time element. Now, what about now? The next one you did after that was um, the teenage uh, mutant ninja turtles. Right, right. <laughs> um, but what a wacky, what a wacky title! <laughs> the two um, creators of the game out in Ma- Massachusetts. So we went out to meet with them, talk to their people about the, the concept for the game, and um, pretty simple concept. The only thing I remember about that, and this is going to sound sound unbelievable, but. Um, we, there's a there's a character of the girl who is um, I think a reporter in the, that whole storyline, and right. I had, we sent in the sketches for her and the, and the artwork, and, and they wanted because it was pinball, they wanted her to be more um, voluptuous, you know, more. Um, and she sure was in that back class. Yeah, I mean, but the, believe me, this was not Paul Ferris. This was encouraging that we I sent in maybe four different different sketches, almost like with a each one kind of being more pumped up, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that was them. I mean, that was, and I was we were surprised because they usually uh, in pinball you're always being. Can you tone down the you know the uh, yeah. the, the female form a little bit? You know, so well, this was the opposite. So and again for a for a theme that I thought of as kind of a kids theme, you know, um, at the time I, I, I know Ninja Turtles were popular with pretty young young kids, but that was their request. So right. that was that was not just me. Hmm. Now on Checkpoint, which was the next one, did the, there was no license with that, right? I mean, they didn't license it with Porsche or anything, right? Right, not at all. I and mean, again, this is Joe. Um, Joe, yeah, I don't know if you know anything about Joe, but Joe has, oh, yeah. um, um, has you know, had a garage in, in his home here in Illinois where he had actually two two layers of, um, he had like ramps in his garage so he could house some of his cars. You know, he is a kind of a car collector. And that was one of his cars, the um, silver vintage Porsche. And actually, I think I actually painted he and I, that's another one where I did use myself, but uh, um, I was one of the drivers, and he was the driver, I believe, in the other car. And uh, that was one of his pet projects, just to, uh, you know, again, to come up right. with a theme that has sort of a... Um, yeah, a strong tie-in without having to pay anybody. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a genius when it comes to money, huh? Yeah, he is. I yeah. mean, I, I won't ever say, you know, differently than that, he's... You know, he's always on to the next thing, and he, I'll never, um, never knock him. He's, as I said, he can be very tough to work with uh, because he's, you know, there's some, you know, manic genius going on there sometimes, and, and he's got a lot of different um, irons in the fire in his head, you know. So um, I remember he was very impressed with Joel Silver when we went out to Hollywood because Joel Silver didn't have just one secretary; he had two. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the guy could keep that many people, you know, jumping. Busy, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. All right, and then it looks like after that you did Batman. Right, and that was fun. Um, that was that was a very good uh, project. It was went well with Dead East, went well with um, with you know, uh, was that Universal. I don't remember Warner Brothers. I think is who we dealt with there. And we met um, one of the head of licensing for Warner Brothers and a nice, real nice assistant that he had, a lady that was very good, and she ended up having a pretty good relationship. Brother projects with Joe. Um, it, we actually did a Batman return. I did a painting for Batman Returns. For a second, um, the one with Danny DeVito, and and that game never got made. But so I have, but I have two Batman paintings of my possession that were, you know, full, you know, full projects for Batman. Um, but the one with uh, Michael Keaton, I, I mentioned earlier that you know he was, they were a little bit tough. It was only on the play field. The, the, the backlash was fine. I guess Jack Nicholson loved it, and we met. Um, um, oh, I forgot the director's name now. Young guy. Uh, it was Tim Burton. 
and uh, right, we got to meet right. him when we went out and talk about the game. And um, as I said, from an artist standpoint, the only thing that was uh, troublesome at all was having to modify Michael's face to look more comic book character like than he, he actually looks. Um, but that's you know those that just goes with the territory. You're, you're constantly trying to tweak people's images a little bit so they satisfy the, the, the personality involved. But um, Tim Burton was actually a very I use the term sweet man. I mean he was he has this reputation of having these sort of dark images and kind of you know kind of weird sensibility visually and um, in person he's a very quiet uh, not you know, not super talkative but very very almost um, you know, almost youth-like, you know, in his um, in his in his personality. So he was a very nice guy, and kind of, you know, when you hear about these geniuses in Hollywood, of these young genius directors and stuff, you don't know what to expect. And he, you know, he didn't come across as any big egoed, um, you know, power-hungry kind of guy at all. He was a very gentle guy, hmm. a very nice guy. So that was kind of a nice um, surprise when we were working on that game. But that game was. Did very well. I think it, um, you know, you know, came at came at a good time, and the the Batman phenomenon had just happened. I think I think the movie had already was already in production when we did it, I believe. But we they brought the Batmobile to the shows, and um, right. so it was kind of a it was a fun time, you know. And, and again, pinball was was on the rise again too. I, I think if they yep. followed a curve, I think pinball, you know, with the emergence of Data East and Williams was doing well, and so pinballs were there back again, you know. So that was a very you know, very fun time to be working on that product. Yeah, early 1990s pinball was real strong again, and then you did you did Hook. Now I can't figure out is you know it was Hook the artwork based on the movie or on on or was it a paid license or what? Paid license. Um, and again, this is another one where um, we got the license for Hook, and this is this is the way these licenses work. Sometimes, I mean, you, you get the rights to use the term Hook, and they sent us a bunch of. Their pre-production art of the different characters and costumes. It was not out yet. I mean, it was, we had no, uh, no pictures of, um, the actual movie at that point. We did go out to Hollywood and, um, and go, we went on the, on the back lot and saw the sets and the sets were spectacular. I mean, it was amazing, but it was a, it was a Broadway, um, set designer that had gone to Hollywood to do the sets. So it was all done on sound stages and they were, and they, they were actually, when we were out there, they were actually giving, you know, friends of the studio were getting tours of the set because it was so, you know, so cool with all the pirate stuff and, the, you know, the Lost World and uh, or the whatever it was called. I forgot what the Lost Boys and their their area of the island on Skull Island. And, um, so that was a, you know, it was very neat for that reason. But the problem was, you know, you're you have the right to hook and you know Spielberg's on board and all that, but you don't have the right to Robin Williams or. Um, Dustin Hoffman's images. Right. I think we had. I can't remember if Julia Roberts um, gave us. I don't think she did either. I think it, so. It was there for some reason. And again, this is you know pinballs coming back up. These people's managers realize this is a, a good chance for some additional revenue on a license theme. So if you use my image, you got to pay me. <clears throat> and I think that was another one of those kind of things that um, the license you know for the concept would be this much, but for all these other actors, you pay another you know, another bunch of money. So I think that it was an attempt to capture the theme. And uh, so I used Gary, and um, Gary Stern was Hook, and um, <laughs> Joe Kamenko was uh, actually Peter Pan, because they were both both shots of their faces were kind of, uh, That's Peter Pan was looking up, and you only see underneath his chin, and he kind of had a Robin Williams look when you look at it from that point of view. And um, 
and then Gary, you know, with the hook character has a mustache and a long wig, and it's so right. it's hard to tell Dustin Hoffman from anybody, you know. So right, right. Um, it's hard enough to see it was him. So that's what we had to do on that one, you know. So that was one that was kind of fun to do. We got to go out to go to the premiere of the movie and, and meet a lot of actors, and, um, and and the party afterwards was a spectacular party in the back lot of Sony. I think it was Sony or huh. um, Universal. And anyway, it turned out to be, um, you know, a fun project in that way but the, you know not being able to use their likenesses was is always right. a little bit challenging so um and then and again we had no actual no shots from the movie to use right right when we were doing it so that's that somewhat ties your hands a little bit and then yeah. you realize that there might be a shift in the direction of the movie or the costume or something by the time you've done your part and you can't change it you know so then you went to this um wwf royal rumble thing and the one thing that i noticed now in this era of Data East machines, the back glasses are great, but the playfield art, it just looks real blotchy and undefined. Is there a reason why that was happening about now? Boy, I'm trying to remember. Um, I'm trying to remember if my... First of all, let me just tell you about the, um, the experience with WWF, and then um, I'm trying to remember even if it's my artwork or not my artwork, because I did some of the playfield art, then then it got changed, because... During that era, and you might appreciate this, was going on with Barry Bonds now, and some of the. Um, we, I, first of all, there was like 24 different guys I painted on the back glass, so the original glass, and then they were going through all these contract disputes with these different wrestlers. You know, one minute Hulk Hogan was going to be in, one minute the Ultimate Warrior was going to go to WW, whatever the other one was. There was another one with Ted Turner that was another wrestling WW. Yeah. I forgot what it was now, um, but it was a, another world wrestling type competition so these guys were were battling back and forth for staying with wwf and so after i had done painted 26 different wrestlers they called and said well we don't have a contract with him this time so we take him out and put this person in and and you know by the time that thing went to production i think actually a guy named marcus um he just used to sign his name marcus and he's kind of one that kind of used photographs for a lot of his stuff and airbrush photographs and I think that might have been the one that actually got used um, because I I was stopped in midstream after all these all these different wrestlers had been changed and they made me paint Hulk Hogan he was all muscular and ripped and, and very vascular just like he was looking at that time but they made me take that out and smooth him all out because there's a steroid scandal that went on at that point where all these wrestlers were <laughs> right. you know promoting their action figures and all that kind of stuff for kids and here you know it came out there was a there was a big thing in the paper and that these guys were actually using steroids and, and this was before they had admitted that um there was just fake and and you know uh, entertainment as they say now right um so um so i can't remember what i mean i still have the original painting i still have the 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 pre-production artwork that was done but i don't even know if my glass got on the on the game because of the the contract stuff that was going on because they you know i was on to other projects at that point and um so and again the playfield stuff i don't remember um i know i can just say this and it's going to sound a little bit picky but um marcus was a a very good airbrush photograph based artist almost like photoshop would be today you know that that's how a lot of stuff gets done today is with on the computer with photoshop but um he was not a, an ink draw. He wasn't. He was the opposite of Dave Christensen. He wasn't a very detailed ink, ink uh, artist. He didn't draw real well with that medium, and that's what the playfield was. Right. And so some of I noticed that some of his playfields 
were not nearly as sophisticated as some of the earlier ones, with the ones that Kevin O'Connor did or that I did, or people that come out from pinball background. So that's the only answer I have for play because another artist was being introduced at that time too. Um, and because you know, again, they were they were when you're working on one project and another one's coming up to be quickly done, you, you can't you can't interrupt and then go jump to another project. So. Um, that was happening at the time. When did four-color process come into playfield usage? Okay, I remember pretty distinctly because as I did Frankenstein, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein piece, I really wanted to use it on that piece um, because I thought it would you know, um, work well with the um, style of the artwork on the back glass. It, um, it wasn't a, a game that was going to require you know, huge areas of very brilliant, vibrant color. It was more of a textural and... Um, you know, a visceral type game. And so I thought maybe that uh, would be a great time to try to introduce this um, four-color process. And again, it's, it's, an, it's a tricky situation. Four-color process on a play field is much tougher to do than it is on a back glass just because you have all these inserts and um, it's wood. It has, you know, there's, sometimes there's a slight bend to the wood and, and it makes it tough to, to, to print um, accurately, you know, because you're only dealing with these little dots and if you, the, the dots are slightly out of register... You have a whole color shift, you know, and so they were they were always nervous about doing it. But the, Joe was again was was pushing for it, and he had uh, we had some film done, um, and then he decided that instead of when it came time to the go ahead on the four color or keep it conventional, they hadn't done enough of the test to, to figure that it was going to work fine. So they said, well, let's go ahead and do Frankenstein um, as a uh, conventional game, and then the next one I do, we could we could do that as four color. And we did. And then the next, so the, I did Frankenstein, and then I did the GoldenEye game with um, Pierce Brosnan as his first James Bond movie, and we did that as a four-color playfield. Hmm. And to my, you know, I think it all worked out pretty well. There was some tweaking in the beginning and some, you know, a little bit of um, concern about, you know, keeping the, the the continuity of the product the same. That's the trickiest thing about four-color is that making... Version one looks like version 260. You know, they, there's a, there can be a shift if you're not careful in color, so you have something that doesn't look like the same product. You know? And uh, that was one of the biggest concerns. And, uh, and, and you're, as I said before, you're, you're printing on a surface that is difficult to print on. So that was the first one. I believe that was the first four-color playfield. Um, was um, Goldeneye. And did you uh, did you meet any of the Goldeneye cast members or and do? And that was a lot of fun. It was actually during the. Um, I didn't even know I was getting the project at the time. We went out to California um, for the premiere of Frankenstein with Robert De Niro and Kenneth Branagh. And what was interesting about that was this, this was a very important film to the English um, film industry. So, um, Wait, know, which we, one? Go ahead. Which was important to the English film? The, the Frankenstein movie was because there wasn't a lot of uh, film product coming in the United, to the United States from the English um, film market. And they had made some, obviously had a history of making very good films as well. So, and this was a project that uh, Kenneth Branagh, who was very famous in England, is one of their top actors, was very involved in. And I, I think he directed the movie as well as acted in it. Um, so it was more his vision of the Frankenstein book and the, rather than the old Frankenstein movies. And it's the one that's most accurate to the book, actually. Um, and that's another one that I really enjoyed doing because I was very familiar with the book and and it was a, a you know reinterpretation of the theme that was different. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't real scary. I mean, they, you know, it, it was a very well made movie, but it wasn't real scary. Didn't do real big box big box office. But um, but at the premiere, um, you know, there was a chance to meet a lot of the actors, and um, 
and we because um, you go down the red carpet with you know before the actors get there you're walking into the theater with a red with a red carpet and the big crowd all around and then the actors come in and they have a cocktail or two Jack Nicholson was at the bar having a cocktail and you know come on over boys have a drink you know um, <laughs> really very very cool guy and uh, there are a lot of celebrities in the audience um, and Tom Cruise was right he and uh, Nicole Kidman were right in front of me when we were walking in and um, at that time he was there because his movie the interview with a vampire was coming out in several weeks from from that point so these actors kind of go to these premieres to right. kind of get their face out there and so that was fun. Um, and then when, you, when we were in the theater, the, the, this is the first time it's ever happened in my life, of course, is you're in the theater with all the celebrities and everybody's seated. And then they ask, they turn the lights up and they ask everybody to stand up. And you say, what am I, you know, what am I doing? What am I standing up for to, in, with a movie? And as they did, they announced the uh, Prince Charles was there and he was coming into his seat. And so everybody in the um, in the theater stands up and here comes Prince Charles down the aisle with, you know, I think a couple other people in his entourage and finds his seat down, you know, down toward the front and sits down. The lights go down, they show the movie and, you know, and then they had a big party across the street at uh, Century City. Uh, and at the party, um, the, uh, they had a pinball for the Frankenstein pinball out in the um, foyer where people were playing it and it was promoting the game for the movie. And, and as I was playing the game, Pierce Brosnan came up and started talking and he said, uh, you know, I never thought I'd see Bobby De Niro on a pinball machine. And, and Joe was saying it came up and started entered into the conversation um, and mentioned that what, that they had just gotten the rights to Goldeneye and that I was going to be doing Pierce's you know, image on this good class. And so we started talking, and we talked for about half an hour. And I and an interesting thing about Pierce Brosnan, who um, seemed like a very cool guy, by the way, um, is that he um, he used to be a commercial artist before he got into acting. And he had just gotten this, you know, the James Bond contract for the next, you know, I think, three movies. And I said, well, I think your your gig there is pretty is pretty uh, rewarding. So I'd stick with that. He said it was very tough as a commercial artist, so he had a lot of respect for for art. And we so we just kind of just shot the breeze for a while. And he, well, his girlfriend at the time was playing the game. Um, so he was a very cool guy. He's a guy that um, I had impressions of in movies as being, you know, not a real masculine kind of guy, more more kind of prissy type guy mm-hmm. in some of the roles he had played but in person he's a real rugged guy a great handshake you know just a he's very he's the one that with all these other actors with tom cruise and everybody else being in there the women that were in our our group were much more impressed with pierce brosnan in person than than almost anybody you know so huh. that was kind of fun now the the next project you did and it looks like it's the last project you did for joe chemical was was twister tell me about that one okay um, that was the one with the last one I think um, I did yes um, and it was just a, it was pretty much a straightforward you know they're making this movie um, about tornadoes and the actors are you know, Bill Paxson Helen Hunt um, I forgot there's a couple other um, ah, I've, I've forgotten some of the other actors that were in it but they were you know fairly well known but it was Helen Hunt's first um, her first movie before she won an Academy Award, but her first leading role, I think, in a movie, uh, and kind of marked the shift in her wanting to become a major movie star from just being this character actress. And um, even though she played sort of this tomboyish type character, she wanted to be a little more, a little glamorous. And so, from the the graphics, on I remember it being you know fairly straightforward. Everything was well received, and um, uh, except I think it was her um, managers. Or, and, and Helen Hunt directly through them did not like the way she was depicted with her eyes being very squinty. And all the pictures we had 
to use from as references had her looking out in the distance at tornadoes and and in in reality she actually does have pretty squinty eyes i mean that's just her physical you know um, the way she looks and um so so uh, you know, again, we had to send several different variations of her. And when you start to open somebody's eyes and changing their configuration of their eyes structure, it it makes them look not as much like themselves. And so you're kind of fighting that all the time. But that was the only kind of hang up on the game that I remember. And again, these things are not unusual. I know I know John Yowsey when he was doing um, Adam's Family, he said he had to do um, um, Angelica Houston um, repeatedly to get. A pose that she was happy with, with her nose and different features that, that, that they're kind of sensitive about, and so we, we we're not a, a unused to doing that, um, mm-hmm. yeah. having to make those corrections. But it was a it was a it was an interesting project. It was fun, um, except for that's the one minor thing. And I think we I think we went to Hollywood for that premiere too, if I remember right. But um, but that was yeah, that's the last one I remember doing. Um, and I think then pinball had started to go the other direction again, if I'm not right, mistaken. Right, It was on a downturn. Well, now, up to, up to this process, it sounds like that you haven't used the computer at all for any of your pinball artwork. I hadn't at that point. I mean, I used it for um, sketches or, you know, changing colors on sketches. I was just getting, probably about the mid-'90s, I was just starting to use the pinball, I mean, the uh, the computer. Um, but But in terms of actually creating digital art that was used, as a digital form, um, I wasn't. I mean, it was still it was still pretty new. I mean, I, there were a lot of people. It was changing though. It was changing rapidly and dramatically. And and to be honest with you, some of the things that you might work 30 years on developing the ability to do with a computer with some slick young guy coming out of college that's pretty good with a computer could could emulate without really understanding perspective or anything because the computer could do that. So it it, it presented a kind of a new challenge in, in the illustration world. You know, you had to have that familiarity with a computer. And then pretty soon, like right now, most images are either end up as a digital file at some point, you know. I mean, even if you create it as an original drawing and then scan it and, and you know, tweak it from there. So I, I use the computer much more now, obviously, than, um, than I did then. But I... You know, I, I always like to see the hand of the artist in, in the work. I mean, you could, so you could tell somebody's style. I know John Yowsey uses the computer a lot, and he and I were both sort of reluctant, reluctantly embracing it at the time. But um, but you had to. You know, it just it's where you know where the future of graphics was going. You know. Um, so, are you going to get back into doing uh, pinball artwork again? Well, you know, um, I, I won't ever say no to it. But I what I <clears throat> what I did, and I, I I'll try to make this real quick, but. I think about about five years ago, um, I had an opportunity to, to make a change in my career that I had always planned to do as I neared retirement. I always wanted to go back into teaching, and you know, kind of my my I envisioned it being sort of a you know a slowing down and becoming a little bit more relaxed in life and not having deadlines and all that kind of stuff. Um, so um, I have a nephew who was becoming was going into his freshman year in high school, and I had raised him as almost our son, my wife and I had kind of taken him in because it was her brother's child and he her his father died when my nephew was in first grade and we had become very involved in his life and um, I, so much so that I was driving an hour every day to go coach him in Little League and wrestling and football and all down in the town called Plainfield, Illinois. And um, as he was um, going into his freshman year of high school, I got a call from the people down in Plainfield, the high school, asking if I'd ever have any interest in being their wrestling coach because I had 
become a familiar figure down in Plainfield coaching my nephew. And uh, I, had, uh, I think I told you before, I'd always liked ed- loved education, mm-hmm. and, and I always planned to go back at some point. I just didn't know when it was going to be convenient. And um, this sort of pre- presented the opportunity, so I, I applied for the job, became the head wrestling coach, and then had to decide how could I run my freelance business as a full-time business and also do this coaching, which is driving an hour away to do all this. So then I kind of re- re-examined things and got my teaching certificate and I've been teaching for five years I was a head wrestling coach down there for the last five years got to coach my nephew he graduated and I this year was my last year as a head wrestling coach down there at the high school and I've been teaching art in high school and still in the summers I do commercial projects but it hasn't been a pinball it's been totally outside like book book illustration and um, package design and those kind of things Um, because it really hasn't been that much um, pinball available plus it's um, it's like there's only one guy left and they're using mostly, I think, photographic stuff now um, in, in, in pinball. And, and, I, and to be able to say I could, you know, lay out six to eight weeks on one project would yeah, be very tough. tough. You know, it's, it's right. got to be much more fluid than that and a little bit shorter bites, you know. So um, so that's, I, I would never say I would never do one because I don't know what's going to happen with pinball. It's, 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 right. It has its, its struggles right now, I think. So now, is there, what was your uh, your favorite pinball Art, you know, favorite pinball artwork piece, and who was the designer that you liked to work with the most? Okay, well, um, probably my I have kind of four favorites. I would say and they're hanging right up, right above me right now in my studio, and um, one was Paragon because of the, right. the theme of it, and it represented a um, a time, uh, you know, the four color process evolving sure. and all a lot of that. Uh, Lost World is a favorite in terms of what it represented from a. Uh, Industry industry yep. uh, position, but not as so much as my favorite piece of artwork. Um, I like Phantom of the Opera, and then I really liked the last. Well, not the last one I did, but I liked the James Bond piece, and I liked um, Frankenstein. I, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of artistically, I really in the packages, I really liked those those packages a, a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt most most satisfied with those pieces. Cool. Um, and the designer I like to work with. I like well, I worked with a bunch. I mean, Joe was. Um, a designer that was a very creative guy and, and very demanding, and but, but less of a. Um, I, although he, you know, he always had Ed Sabula as his mechanical, you know, guy that could be to make his ideas work out. Um, so he was he was fun, but also could be very challenging to work with because he, he, you know, his idea could change overnight, and he'd have a do, new idea, and, right. and he was very, um, you know, yeah, well, yeah, if you know Joe, you know, he's, his yeah. ideas are very, um, yeah, you know, fluid. He's, he's right, and, he, and many times he is right. So I would say he was he was fun, and there's a lot of great memories from working with him, but also very challenging. The guy that really was, um, and I, I worked with a lot of good designers. Greg Kamick was a very good designer. Um, Gary Gatons, a guy that used to work at uh, Bally, he yep. did the Evil Knievel yep. piece. But I would say Jim Patla and I hit it off the best. He had a lot of respect for what I did. He did appreciate artwork. Sometimes in the pinball business, the designers really felt they were king of the hill, and the artists were just somebody to decorate their ideas. That, that wasn't the case at Bally, and there, so there was respect for what um, what we were doing and, and the appreciation for it. Um, and he was a very thorough designer. I, I just always thought of him as a very professional designer. That he would really he didn't, didn't just design a game. He made sure mechanically it all worked. And Centaur was a major example of that. He um, he really tweaked all the mechanisms for that to work with a ball de- delivery device. And right. um, so he, he was a good one. Hmm. Well, cool. Thank you, Paul. I really, really do appreciate all the time. 
Well, I hope I haven't rambled too much, but you bring, you know, when you try to remember memories, it uh, doesn't always come out in linear form. <laughs> but uh, it's great talking to you. You did great. All right. All right. Take hope care, Paul. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Paul Ferris for joining us tonight on TopCast. Really do appreciate his extended interview. It was great hearing all the stories about all the games that he did the artwork on and how he uh, helped with the four-color process and making that a reality uh, on both back classes and ultimately playfield. It was great spending some time with Paul, and again, I really, really appreciate his time, and I hope you all come back and join us again for TopCast.